Emergency medicine abstract with Sanjay and Mike. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> wow, we really hit the whole We're spectrum. There. You just don't know what time people are listening to this thing, you know? No, I assume they're coming home from shifts. And st- they're either going to or coming home from shifts. Yeah. Or they've made a terrible mistake. Could be like good, could be like good early, early morning. You're on that way into uh, that six o'clock shit. Who knows? I doubt it. That would be a nice user poll that we could put out there. When do you listen to EMA? I feel like at the six o'clock shift going in at 6 a.m., Nobody wants to hear us. Well, if you're I think on that's your way, that's also true late at night. But they're resigned to the fact that they must. I'll say, if you're on your way to a shift, hope you have a good one. Yes, and if you're coming back, I hope you don't have another one tomorrow. And I hope you had a good one. <laughs> oh, I don't. You probably don't even remember. If you're like me, when you're leaving your shift, the minute you get in your car, you're like, "Wait, where was I the last twelve hours? I can't remember anything." Yeah. Well, <laughs> leaving a shift for us is just like. It's traffic time now, <laughs> usually. For most right. of our shifts, so we're coming home, we're like, okay, that took me 30 minutes to get here. Let's buckle in for an hour and a half drive <laughs> yeah. home. Yeah, let's see what audio Let's listen to there. half of EMA. What does BBC International or First Wave on Sirius XM have to say for the next hour and a half? Okay, this is my new thing, right? I feel like, and I think I mentioned this to you previously, that 80s music yes. is making like this huge comeback okay and i know it's always been around don't call it a comeback i I, I knew you were gonna say something (laughs) like that okay but i'm just saying in the sort of general if you listeners out there now pay attention because i noticed it as i told you the other day i was shopping and like Mm -hmm. in a mall they were playing 80s music which is a little bit unusual you know usually it's like because malls are dead now and shopping is dead and the only people who go to such places are like in their mid-40s i heard it at a fast food restaurant that's different. It's still in a mall. <laughs> no, but still, it's, I just I know, feel I like, and then two more here I have. Amanda and I actually took like a grown-up trip. We left the kids at home for a couple days and went to San Francisco, went to like a really nice restaurant with some friends. 80s music there. Yeah, because people, 80s grow up, they got the money to spend at three-star Michelin restaurants. And then Mike and I recently yeah. took a, a very high-level Oh, yeah, we did an executive, executive retreat. <laughs> No, Mike and I did sort of like a, a work retreat slash just get away for a night down the spa most of the time while we were there. But we did talk a lot about work, how to make EMA better, all this other stuff. And we went to dinner. I 80s music. 80s music in Las it's Vegas. Just, it's back. It's, it's like, I know you say it never left. How about this? It's finally reaching that resurgence of popularity that it's always deserved to have. Of course. For, especially the first wave stuff. You that's know, right. That's like, uh, you know, your Depeche Modes and your Cures and your, you know, a whole bunch of great stuff from the 80s that, uh, yeah, definitely I'm hearing it around town more. But like I said, I've been listening to this first wave for years. So I'm, I'm just, just glad saying, that, you know, if it's I awesome. See, and there's this notion in fashion, right? Like you stay the course, eventually the curve bends back to you. I'm enjoying it. Oh, I'm <laughs> loving it. I'm loving the 80s. Now it'll be gone everywhere and- you go. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully now everybody will realize just how great that it is. The 90s will come back. I don't think so. It's too terrible. I think it's too I think I think the I mean now I know Mike and I sort of grew up with 80s yeah. music. This is like, you know, what, the first concert I went yeah. to, I still remember like, you know, from the it was the K-Rock Acoustic Christmas concert, oh, the, the acoustic- very first one, Headliner wow. Violent Femmes. Violent Femmes, um, nice. But that my yeah, my my recollection of the 80s was all so great with such great music and and now it's like it just makes me happy. I go to a store I haven't heard it for 20 years in a store, and now I'm hearing 80s music. Loving it. Okay. 
All right. Well, thank I'm you, glad world, you're happy for bringing I'm it back. Glad I'm glad very... this is elevating your mood in these otherwise very dark times. Actually, it's not so dark from a COVID perspective, perspective, right? I mean, like we're you know again, we've gone through this many times. That just no don't do it. We, no, Hold no, on. but no, I'm, I'm, I know good. what you're doing because every good. time you say it, the no. flip happens. No, I know, I know, but I'm feeling good. The other times I was always sort of like I was tepid. This time I'm feeling good. I'm feeling that we're going to be emerging out of the COVID pandemic now. By the time you guys are hitting this, we're going to be having a good summer. Because what month are we recording right now, after all? It's March. No, it's March now. I know, when, I know, I know what day it is today, but we're, we're recording. This is May. We're recording May, I know. So we're going into the summer months. This is going to be great. You know what else is going to be great? This month's recording. You say so. What do you got? I have some good stuff. I have a like a long-awaited paper chase paper that I'm really excited to go over. It doesn't have quite the results that I wanted, but that it's not because it's not a great paper. And I have a bunch of like sort of I don't know what how I'd say them. They're like a bunch of papers that are heavily flawed but have nice little clinical pearls or light nice little messages that I think we, you know, or at least I've been trying to extract out of them. So I'm kind of interested to see how this goes. Yeah, what do you got? got I've got some good stuff. My paper chaser is a COVID paper. Oh, that's uh, I think right. that's the only one of the month though. And then I've got some anticoagulation stuff, actually, um, mm-hmm. looking at you know delayed head bleeds, revisiting this TXA nosebleed situation, which now seems to be becoming a situation. It's a gate. It's yeah. a TXA gate. I'm um, talking about sort of best practices in pediatric DKA. Mm-hmm. For me, this is a solid month. I'm looking forward to it. And after we're done, we'll have uh, the ultra summary yep. by Jess and Jenny. And then we got a little bit of time. To talk nerdy. We got nerdy and it's it's peer review this month. Yes. Which uh, is something we know quite a bit about, actually. (laughs) We have have many, many, many papers in such process right now, but I'll be curious to hear what they have to say about it. So I'm looking forward to the month. Welcome to May. Off we go. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Early remdesivir to prevent progression to severe COVID-19 in outpatients. This is by Gottlieb et al. from the New England Journal of Medicine. So at this point in the COVID-19 pandemic, seems like this virus is really hitting unvaccinated patients the hardest. That's what we're seeing in the ED. And then regardless of vaccination status, older patients and those with comorbidities, including obesity and diabetes, are still at risk of clinical deterioration hospitalization, and death. Now, remdesivir is a direct-acting nucleotide prodrug inhibitor of the SARS-CoV-2 RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which is what the virus uses to replicate itself, and has been tested previously with some positive results among hospitalized inpatient populations. The active form of the drug basically works by blocking viral replication by getting itself incorporated into the replicating RNA. So it just really looks like a, a you know, ATP um, yeah. just sees some it nucleoside. as uh, yeah. some nucleoside and then causes the process to abruptly halt. So it just kind of hits this weird stopgap and is done. Or it makes a faulty copy of the thing which then can't cause any illness, replicate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, this sounds like a really promising therapeutic option, but the real question is, by the time a patient with symptoms, who's sort of in a full cytokine inflammation storm state, at that point, will stopping further viral replication have any value or sort of has the damage already been done? This is a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial looking at the efficacy and safety of remdesivir 
among high-risk non-hospitalized, these are outpatients, with confirmed COVID-19 seen within a week of symptom onset. High-risk conditions, so people who were included in the study, were age greater than 60 years, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, chronic lung disease, chronic liver disease, among several others. This was a multinational effort from 64 sites in the U.S., Spain, Denmark, and the U.K., enrolling patients from September of 2020 to April of 2021. And they were randomized to receive IV remdesivir or placebo for three days. So, you know, they got their first dose while they were in the ED for the most part, but the rest of it had to be done coordinated at an infusion center. There were a few other places you could get it done, but almost 95% was done at an infusion center. The primary outcome was a composite outcome of COVID-19-related hospitalization, so a disease-specific hospitalization, or death for any cause at 28 days. Their primary safety outcome was any adverse event. They conducted a power calculation and estimated that they needed just over 1,200 patients, but interestingly, the sponsor cut this study short. And this was not done because of like, you know, a planned interim analysis by a data safety monitoring board. At some point, the sponsor just said, hey, infections are going down. And their real issue, what they said in the paper was that they had some ethical problems continuing to give placebo to the control group when there were some things, they didn't say remdesivir, but other things like monoclonal antibodies and things like that, that people are starting to do for outpatients and they felt strange withholding those things from if you were enrolled in the study because you were only supposed to get placebo and increased vaccination rates because they were only enrolling unvaccinated people here. So they have data from 562 patients. The mean age was 50 years. They were just about 50% women, 40% Hispanic or Latinx. The most common coexisting conditions were diabetes over 60%, obesity over 50%, and hypertension just under 50%. A third of the patients were older than 60 years, and the median duration from first symptom to first infusion was five days. There were no deaths in either group, but the hospitalization rate was lower in the remdesivir group, 0.7% versus 5.3%. And this is the number that's been sort of touted about this paper, which is it's a relative reduction of 87%, right? Although they leave off the word relative and sort of the, the banner, the highlight on this thing. Symptom resolution was higher at 14 days in the remdesivir group as well. 35% versus 25%. Adverse events were all generally mild with remdesivir, but they were higher in the remdesivir group, 12% versus 9%, although I'm not exactly sure how you calculate the adverse event rate for the placebo group and why it would be 9%. It was a little um, weird. They had a really big table of every yeah. possible, it was just kind of like, you felt nauseous, we're going to call that an adverse Sometimes event. Sometimes they so, even count things that are Sound like COVID as an adverse event. And they did. Cough and shortness of breath. It was all in there. So So hard to know what to make of that, you know, sort of safety part of it, adverse event part of it, but it didn't look to be too bad. The monoclonal antibody studies that came out where the adverse event rate was actually higher in the placebo group. I remember that. Than in the monoclonal antibody group, which is relatively impossible, but hey. Yeah. And speaking of monoclonal antibody therapy, you know, in the discussion, the author sort of suggests here that they're not saying this is better than monoclonal antibody therapy. What they are saying is that 
we should pay attention to this remdesivir thing because the mechanism of action may make it more likely to maintain efficacy against new variants and emerging variants, unlike the monoclonal antibodies where we know sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, depends on the exact variant. Now, the major limitation of sort of widespread implementation of this thing is that they excluded vaccinated patients. Like so many trials to date, they don't have anybody vaccinated in here. And this is sort of this weird thing of it being stopped early for these administrative reasons and not due to a planned interim analysis. But you have to know about this one, I think, because this is good data out there for an alternative for high-risk patients you're planning on discharging from the ED that was FDA approved in January of 2022. Now, a lot of these things get this emergency authorization, emergency use thing, not this one. This is actually FDA approved for adults with COVID, confirmed COVID, who are being discharged. So you should know about this from Disavere. There is some other things coming out that are useful for outpatients. Your hospital, your ED is probably going to come up with sort of a list of things you can give them and follow it. And now you know the data. Yeah, but I wouldn't do it. I mean, you know, bottom line is that, you know, th- this is your absolute difference is about 4%. So your number needed to treat, you know, 25 to prevent a hospitalization. And I've been critical of this hospitalization and or death thing because obviously there's a big difference between a COVID-specific hospitalization and dying. And I just wanted to highlight one thing that, because this came up at a conference where I was talking about, you know, hospitalization. Hospitalization actually in this context is a manipulable outcome. And the reason it is, is because you can imagine yourself, right? For example, you're treating some patient who's got COVID and they come back to the, your office or the ED or whatever. And they're like, yeah, I'm on this experimental therapy and I feel worse. What would you do? Right? I mean, there's obviously going to be a much lower threshold to bring somebody like that into the hospital since you don't know what they're on, right? It's a weird thing to do. So that's going to exaggerate hospitalization numbers. So here you've got like, you know, 5% of the popular of the people roughly whatever getting admitted. And, you know, I, I don't doubt that they're, they're worse than the people who got placebo. I'm, I have no doubt that remdesivir has this marginal effect, but it's marginal. And if that effect size gets amplified, if people are really eager to admit you because you're on some experimental drug and you're, you've been counseled by your experimental drug manufacturer to go to the hospital if you're feeling any adverse events, which obviously you would, you would do. That's what you always do with, in, in these types of studies. So it's going to artificially magnify that. You add into the fact that these are not Omicron variant. This is all Delta variant, right? Where the risk of hospitalization is way, way higher than it is currently. And so you end up with this thing where the, you know, this thing can't possibly have a number needed to treat of less than, you know, a hundred at this point, you know, 50 to a hundred. So I just don't see any value for it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you on the numbers. That's an interesting point about the magnification of the hospitalization. But the bottom line is, I think most community EDs are going to be using these things in addition to sort of they're still using monoclonal antibodies. They are. No, they're not. Uh, they no, are can't. using remdesivir. Monoclonal antibodies are go- gonzo. They're not effective against Omicron. Uh, isn't that sort of dependent on where you, what country you live in and that kind not of thing? Again, the, I, I don't, the, I know the Regen here, Cove is not, is, it's not even available in the United States I know States here anymore. in the United States, we're not using them much anymore. I'm not sure that's true all over the world. And then there's these other, there's an oral, you know, an oral version of remdesivir, which is brand new, like developed in San Diego a couple of months ago that people are really hot on. So, you know, the big thing with this one is you have to bring them back to an infusion center. Of course. But I'm going to tell you that if you're working at like, a, you know, a rich person hospital, 
there's going to be some protocols in place to get these people outpatient COVID therapy. Whether you like it or not, you know the data, you can make your own decisions on it, but there are going to be more coming out, not less. That's my prediction. Editor's commentary. In this multinational blinded randomized control trial, the authors found a three-day course of remdesivir reduced hospitalization among unvaccinated high-risk outpatients with COVID. While it may be more readily available than monoclonal antibodies, it might be more difficult to organize and administer as it does require three separate infusions on three separate days. I think we should be aware of all of the new options for outpatients with COVID being discharged, and this is just one of them, which actually has FDA approval. So know about them, know the data, and make your own decisions. Abstract number two, risk for recurrent VTE in patients with subsegmental pulmonary embolism managed without anticoagulation, a multicenter prospective cohort study by Legal et al., and this is in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So it's a great study that I've been waiting for literally for like 20 years. The idea is that we've been diagnosing many, many more PEs over the last couple of decades, most likely due to the advent of helical CTs. During that same time, the case fatality rate has been dropping dramatically, and the overall mortality has remained flat. This combination of increasing diagnosis, decreasing case fatality, and mortality being flat suggests that what's driving all of this is overdiagnosis rather than an increase in, you know, sort of the prevalence of PE. A number of groups of people, including myself and the illustrious Jerry Hoffman, have been arguing that these small, subsegmental, hemodynamically seemingly innocuous PEs that are diagnosed on chest CT are basically normal variants. That, you know, that's part of the job of the lung is to filter these things out. And if you take a really, really, really close look at it, you'll find some of these in there. And it doesn't pretend a bad outcome at all or predict that you're going to have some significant PE going forward and that they don't need anticoagulation. That has largely been conjecture. You know, I readily admit that, that there's a lot of people that believe it, but it's not been proven. So the American College of Chess Physicians, actually, their newest guidelines actually suggest that clinical surveillance may be appropriate for such cases, these subsegmental, hemodynamically stable folks, instead of anticoagulation. But they give one of those like super low recommendations with super low level of evidence because there's not even been any prospective trials on it, only, you know, sort of retrospective reviews. These authors decided to follow those practice guidelines in a rigorous way and report out the incidence of subsequent VTE in such patients. So this was a multi-center international prospective cohort study, not an interventional study. It's a cohort study. It was performed in Switzerland, Holland, France, and Canada. Patients were enrolled if they had subsegmental PE, no proximal PEs, and negative bilateral duplex ultrasounds. They excluded patients who had active cancer or a known thrombophilic condition or were hospitalized prior to enrollment. So if you were in the hospital for three days and then you developed your PE. They also excluded people who had oxygen requirement, but it's kind of hard to imagine how those people would have like little tiny subsegmental PEs. Anyway, they did. Enrolled patients did not receive anticoagulation. They just said, be gone with you. The primary outcome was a recurrent venothromboembolic event within 90 days, either a DVT or a PE. 
And secondary outcomes included death due to PDE or death due to anything and bleeding and a whole bunch of other secondary stuff. A priori, the authors estimated the risk of recurrent VTE in this population would be around 1% at 90 days. And that's based on the retrospective analyses that they had done previously. And so they calculated they'd need 300 patients to prove that this 1% were true with narrow enough confidence intervals to feel good about, you know, that kind of thing. For some reason, it took 10 years to enroll 300 patients or 292 patients across all of these places. I I can't understand that because they say that they looked at consecutive patients and such, but we'll sidestep that for a minute. The study protocol was actually a little weird. What they did is they enrolled patients. Okay, so they said, okay, you have subsegmental PE. And then they did a real-time ultrasound right then to see if they had blood clots. If they had blood clots, they said, you're not eligible, right? If they have them in their legs, you're not eligible. You need anticoagulation. Then they repeated the ultrasound in about a week. And if they had a blood clot at that point, they were also disenrolled, right? And I think that that's, you know, basically to account for the possibility that those patients had maybe a calf DVT to begin with, and it was progressing and stuff like that. The point I'm getting at, it makes the numbers a little bit weird. They started out with 292, and then in that one week, 28 patients were found to have blood clots. So that number went down to 262. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I'm just sort of doing the math there. So 10% of them... Even the ones who had subsegmental did end up having a clot within yeah. a week. Yeah, either so I think a few of them had it at the index ultrasound, and but like another good chunk of them had it, you know, maybe 16 of that 28, something like that. I don't have that number right in front of me, but it wasn't totally trivial. So this is a strategy if you're thinking about, you've got to sort of, there's like some moving parts in yeah. there. So what happened? So we end up with 262 people. That's the, the study cohort that didn't have a DVT after a week and all this kind of stuff, and they were the ones that they followed out. Of that 262, 3%, eight people, had recurrent VTE within 90 days. Four people died. None of them died of PE. Two of them died of cancer, which they weren't supposed to have, but apparently they, nobody knew and they did, which is probably not terribly surprising. One person died of sepsis, and one died of major hemoptysis, which is a little bit concerning, but apparently was not anticoagulated and it was not due to a PE. Again, none of those deaths were adjudicated by the safety monitoring group to have been due to VTE. Among the 191 patients who had an isolated PE, single segment PE, and were less than 65, the recurrence of VTE was 1.8%. For those who were greater than 65 years of age, the recurrent uh, VTE rate was 5.5%, so quite high. So the authors conclude that the VTE rate is definitely higher than some of the retrospective analyses. Here we're seeing it's 3%. They thought it was 1%. And they think that that was like basically unacceptably high, right? Then they go back and say, well, you know, actually, when we look at it, the rate of recurrent VTE among patients with more proximal clots who are on anticoagulation is also around 3%, right? So maybe this rate isn't that bad, but, you know, that was not what they thought going in. They thought going in, that we want to prove that it's 1% or less or right around 1% and it ended up being 3% and 5% if it's a, like a sort of more high-risk group with like older individuals. So this sort of refutes that hypothesis that it's totally safe with these folks to just send them on their way without anticoagulation. And in general, the risk of anticoagulation is pretty small, right? Like maybe 1% you know, of major bleeding. So this sort of you know, throws that the, what I've been advocating for or hoping for up into the air. So there may be a subset of patients 
who end up being at very low risk for recurrent VT. They're young, they have single segment, maybe there's something else. But this study really doesn't have the power or ability to detect them and confirm that. So as of right now, the best available evidence suggests that the average person with a subsegmental PE should be treated with anticoagulation. If they otherwise had a contraindication to anticoagulation, this paper might be informative if you're trying to weigh out those risks and benefits. It's not like the risk is huge, but the anticoagulation risk is generally not huge either. If that change, that calculus change, maybe this could be informative. Future studies will definitely be required to randomize patients you know, who are in that low-risk category to anticoagulation versus no anticoagulation to truly estimate you know, sort of the potential benefit of this sort of watch and wait strategy. But right now, this affirms our current practice, I think, to anticoagulate you know, almost all of these patients who have VTE. Edit this commentary. This was a very important prospective cohort study of patients with subsegmental PE who were managed without anticoagulation. The 90-day incidence of recurrent VTE was 3%, which was significantly higher than the authors anticipated and generally suggests that most or all such patients with these types of PEs should be treated with anticoagulation unless they have significant contraindications. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Efficacy of Topical TXA in Epistaxis, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, and this is by Janapala et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So this whole topic of TXA for epistaxis is kind of confusing, truth be told, you know, because over the years, there has been some evidence, published papers that say this stuff works. It is a good treatment option, but most of those trials were pretty small, unblinded, had different sort of comparator groups, like what they, you know, the placebo, quote unquote. And there's big potential here for publication bias. Like maybe we only published the positive ones. Now, last year, we covered the NOPAC trial, which was a double-blinded, randomized study from 26 EDs that did not find value of TXA over placebo in terms of needing anterior packing. That was their primary outcome. But it is worth noting that all patients in this study received a standardized period of pressure and vasoconstrictors prior to randomization. So here they were testing out TXA as kind of a second line in NOPAC. They were doing very standardized stuff first for people in both groups. Now, here the authors attempt to add some clarity to this topic by conducting a systematic review and meta-analysis with actually pretty good methods and a primary outcome of bleeding cessation after treatment. And I don't do this often in the EMA, sort of this, the program, but I'm going to cut to the chase and say this one was actually positive, right? So this right. is a meta-analysis, cinematic view that turned out to be positive. And so several people sent this one in for us to cover. And one of our residents, third-year resident Chase Wester, the day this came out, kind of sent it to me and was like, what am I supposed to do here? I thought the NOPAC trial was the best one on the topic is that it was negative. Now we have the best meta-analysis on the topic saying it's positive and that it does work. So it's worth going through sort of to try to understand how they could come at that result. So in this paper, they identified eight different studies for inclusion. Seven were randomized trials and one was a retrospective study with just under 1,300 total patients. There was, they do these assessments for bias, mm -hmm. right? Like they always have some formula and they look different tools can do mm -hmm. that. 
But here, basically, they concluded that there was a concern for bias in all the included studies except for two. Which the OPEC the, study? Yeah, and, and one other. Uh, the other randomized, one one. The other sort of larger randomized control trial, but still pretty small. Yeah. Otherwise, looked like there was some bias here. Or potential for. Now, looking at their primary outcome, the authors found, and again, this is like the top line finding from this meta-analysis, that patients who got TXA were 3.5 times more likely to have bleeding cessation on the first reassessment of the patient, which ranged from 10 to 30 minutes after treatment. So that's a clear, this thing works, like to the magnitude of 3.5 times. They also looked at return visits for between 24 and 72 hours after discharge for bleeding recurrence and found this to be lower among patients who got TXA with an odds ratio of 0.37. Now, these findings, like I said, are in stark contrast to the Rubin study, the NOPAC trial. But really importantly, as NOPAC did not comment on bleeding cessation or recurrence, it was not included in the meta-analysis. So they reviewed it in the systematic review part of this paper, but in the meta-analysis, which is where all their conclusions come from, this study and its 500 patients, so subtract 500 from that 1,300, were not included. The remaining trials that were included in the meta-analysis part were largely non-blinded, had vastly different comparator or placebo arms, ranging from a placebo gel. So somebody came in with a, you know, a nosebleed. They didn't do compression. They didn't do anything. They did TXA for one and a placebo gel for the other. Some of the studies had compression and some had a formal anterior pack as the control arm. You know? So really, it was a very, very heterogeneous group of interventions for the control. And of course, all these trials had much smaller numbers of total patients. Lastly, they were unable in this meta-analysis, which sometimes you can do. You know, you have uh, like a bunch of different trials that are all a little bit small and you put them together and you can say, what about the people on anticoagulants or whatever? Some high-risk subgroup because you don't have enough in one trial, but you look at eight trials together, you can come up with sort of some of these like, you know, would they work on a specific cohort of patients? They were unable to do that here because these details, the things they would have wanted to look at, were not included in those seven studies, the original studies. They couldn't do it. So the authors end up being pretty bullish on the concept of TXA for nosebleeds. But I think truthfully, at the end of the day, there's a lot of room for personal preference here, right? It's like, you know, as, I mean, NOPAC pretty clearly said, as a second line, it's not going to work. You know, it doesn't work if you care about packing the patient, which I think is what most people do care that's about. What, that's, that's a what really yeah. relevant clinical yeah. outcome. Now, if you want to make some argument that, okay, well, the second they hit the door, maybe it works better than a topical vasoconstrict or something, I don't know. It's never really been studied like that. I think if you're kind of like really last-ditch effort, you might want to try it. But it is interesting to see, you know, to go through the detail, I think, of a little mm -hmm. bit of a meta-analysis sure. like this that comes out in contrast to a paper we all know and see why they might have come to a different conclusion. Yeah, I also think this is like, you know, I think we knew it when because we, we've covered a lot of these small trials. We've, I think we've covered pretty much all of them. Maybe there's a couple that are... We, we, well, we there's some old ones. Yeah. I was looking, I was like, read these, I read some yeah. of the trials. They're yeah. like from 1999. Yeah, you know? well, we didn't cover that, but we covered, I think, you know, at least four we've or five several. of these, uh, these trenexemic acid for nosebleed things. And 
you know, we, we knew even then that, you know, this is like, some of them were definitely too good to be true. There's just no question. It was like, you know, 60% versus 0%. You're like, that's, that can't be the case. So we knew that that, that was too good to be true. And this does, you know, have a very familiar story to it, right? Which is like the small, early, unblinded trials, you know, have really, really high treatment effects. The later, bigger, blinded trials with less risk of bias, the treatment effect size shrinks down. And, you know, in this case, of course, the NOPAC trials shrunk, shrunk down to zero. But if you lump all of them together, you know, and you do the math, and in this case, they even did weird math, and not weird math, but they excluded the NOPAC. So that's yeah. right. But even if you included it, it would probably still be positive because, you know, you're giving equal weight to the small unblinded trials in the first yeah, place. Yeah, I think so, that's right. And I think, you know- This is a story that tells itself over and over again in the literature, not just with trying to Sometimes acid. when we go through papers like this too, I'm always like, you know, because we, you know, and Mike and I are residents, we used to listen to Rick and Jerry do mm -hmm. this very thing we're doing now. And I was just like, thank God they told me about that. Because mm -hmm. this exclusion of the NOPAC patients is not in the abstract. Like yeah. that's just not in there. You yeah. have to look a little bit deeper to see that. So anyway, thanks to everybody for suggesting this paper. And- uh, I hope it's a little more clear now. Editor's commentary. Although this meta-analysis looking at the value of TXA for epistaxis showed improved bleeding cessation, it excluded the largest and most well-conducted study on the topic, and the remaining trials had highly heterogeneous control arms, were unblinded, and at risk of bias. I think there is enough controversy on the topic where you can decide on your own if you think this has value as a first-line agent over vasoconstrictors, but after vasoconstrictors and pressure have failed, it is less obvious to me that we should be using TXA. Quick take. Abstract number four, and this is a quick take. It's multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, Miss C, by COVID-19 vaccination status in adolescents in France, and this is by Levy et al., and it's in JAMA. So, COVID vaccination has, at this point, saved millions of lives worldwide, including an estimated, just look this up to see how many estimated lives were saved in the United States by COVID vaccinations. You know, that's a pretty impressive number. 1.3 million. 1.3 million is how much they're estimating we've saved in the U.S. alone. Many, many millions more otherwise. Most of these are adult lives, since COVID has never been terribly fatal for children and or adolescents. Adolescents do appear to have a slightly higher average rate of developing vaccine-related myocarditis, which has sort of reduced enthusiasm for vaccination among this group. What's been completely unknown is how vaccinating young people affects the incidence of the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, something that might influence the risk calculation for younger children's vaccination decisions. These authors look at how the vaccination status affected the incidence of MIS-C in France over the past summer when France endured its fourth wave of COVID that was due to the Delta variant, because this is still in 2021, last summer. Over a four-month study period, they found, looking at their French ministry health data, 107 cases of MIS-C identified in France. That's all of it, all of it, of whom 33 were vaccine-eligible adolescents. Because in France, I know this because I was in France, I have lots of friends there that with little kids, they didn't approve going down to age five until fairly recently, like when I was there in January. So only the adolescents 12 to 17 were eligible in France during this time. So they found 33 of those cases 
that had missed seat. Among those 33, zero had been fully vaccinated. Zero had been fully vaccinated, and only seven had at least one dose. So when they do this at a population level, they concluded that the hazard ratio of developing Miss C was 0.05 for adolescents receiving at least one dose compared to those who are unvaccinated. So one twentieth the risk of developing Miss C. So basically, this data suggests that the small risk of developing Miss C following COVID among adolescents was reduced to virtually no risk after vaccination. Now, Miss C typically affects kids that are more in that like sort of six to 10 year old range. And this data can't directly speak to those children, but it is evidence that vaccination has a direct benefit to children and adolescents in addition to the presumed benefit to the community at large, since these kids aren't, you know, helping propagate the COVID pandemic if they're vaccinated. Editor's commentary. This population-based study from France shows that vaccination reduced the probability of developing Miss C by about 20-fold in adolescents who received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. Abstract number five. Utilization of anti-factor 10A levels to guide reversal of oral factor 10A inhibitors in the ED. This is by Zepesky et al. from the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy. Yeah, yeah, we cover that. <laughs> you know, if, if you're like, how did these guys find this paper? Listen to the March intro yes. for EMA. Because we actually explain. We explain our process, the sci- highly rigorous scientific process. Which is that like every month we go through and we're like, let's do all the pharmacy journals. And that's what happens. And then no, the next we put, month we, we put all every, the dentist journals. We put journals. every paper ever published on the board, get 22 darts. We actually have 24 darts. <laughs> we throw them against the wall. Sometimes 20 stick, sometimes 22 stick. Yep. That's, how, that's not how we do it. Okay. So oral factor 10A inhibitors are rapidly becoming the most common form of anticoagulants that we see in the ED. And unfortunately, standard anticoagulation lab tests like PT and PTT have not been shown to be reliable indicators of anti-10A concentration or activity. And this creates a problem when taking care of a patient, you know, who's taking a pixaban or rivaroxaban presents with a life-threatening bleed, and we don't know if they are actually taking the medication, it's in their you know, medical record, that we don't know when their last dose was, these things don't last for a while, so it creates a little bit of confusion. There are anti-10A assays available, but their value in real-time clinical decision-making in the ED has not yet been evaluated. The authors of this paper describe their experience after implementing a pixaban and rivaroxaban anti-10A assays for critically ill ED patients. And so this is basically a case series of 30 people, and they go into a lot of detail of each human being included in this paper. Yeah, and can I pause you for a second? Because I have seen that there are places that actually fairly routinely monitor anti-10A activity in patients who are on rivaroxaban. I've mostly seen this as an outpatient, but this isn't some research lab sort of thing that you're describing. This is in clinical practice. You got it. Like in their ED, they made this test available. Right. right? And And my point being that it wasn't like, or maybe, maybe I don't know, but this wasn't like, you know, at the NIH hospital where they've got like every, you know, kind of thing. This is a normal place, right? Normal place. Mm -hmm. So they described these 30 patients, which is what the number of tests that were sent over a one year period which is sort of what they were describing. The median age of the patients was 78, 50% male, 
and 60% of them had an intracranial hemorrhage. That was their bleeding pathology. 14 were taking apixaban, 13 were taking rivaroxaban, and three patients were actually not taking any factor 10A inhibitors. Like they thought they were, so they sent the thing, but turned out later they weren't taking them. Like I said, they had a lot of details about all these people. The median time from blood sample collection to result, which is, you know, that's, that's collection. That's not even in lab time, was 45 minutes. So yeah, this well, test. Their came, tube system works better than ours. Yeah. So this test <laughs> came back pretty quick. And like I said, the results here are basically just a description of these 30 patients, the types of injuries they had, the type of procedure needed, their anti 10A assay results, and whether or not they received a reversal agent. So, you know, we had this thing. Did we actually use it? Because that's like the second part of it, right? And one of the issues with using it in the ED, like you said, Mike, appropriately, they use it in a lot of outpatient settings, is there is no universally agreed upon sort of threshold for what warrants reversal versus doesn't, right? Sure. That's one of the big issues why this thing, I think, is not used. Right, I think on the outpatient, liberally. they do it to titrate that's the exactly medication. Right. Yeah, to, not but, to, you know, if somebody has a value of 80 versus 60 versus right. 450, right. which one of those are supposed to get reversed? That's where a little bit of the controversy was. I see. Right? That, and that, so they were just sort of like, like you said, not a study. Let's just throw the value out there and kind of like yep. see what happens, right? But looking over the table, like I said, they give every single value and what happened to the cases. It did seem like patients with generally high values always got a reversal agent. And the use of reversal agents were more mixed on low values. And like I said, the spectrum of values was, uh, I don't even remember the unit, but it literally went from like 20 to like 800. You know, it was like a big range. And kind of when you got in that double digit range, it seemed like there was a little bit more variability about whether or not the reversal agents were used, right? But this is purely observational data, right? We have no way of knowing if the treatment decisions were based on the test results or something else entirely. Like it's only 30 people. There's only a couple of them that didn't get the thing. Maybe it's just the surgeon, whoever was taking them was like, I know this guy. I've talked to the family. We don't need to do the reversal agent. Right. There's just no way to know. We know they haven't taken it in three months. That's right. So, you know, I think this paper was not included because it's groundbreaking science. It's more just to let you all know that these tests do exist. They're not experimental. They're not, like Mike said, not in an NIH, you know, storehouse somewhere. Mm. They're out there and they can be resulted in time windows that could impact management, right? And for me, what I'm thinking about this is, because like I said, we don't know what number has value, doesn't have, but if it came back at zero, that could be useful. Like that would be a useful thing because these reversal agents ain't cheap. Right. You know, if we're thinking about using them. So it's almost like using it binary to me makes a little bit of sense, but I have no data to support that approach. One man's opinion. It's more to let you know these tests are out there. Yeah. And I think that's great. I mean, honestly, that's part of the role of VMA, I think, is to sort of scour this stuff and say, hey, did you know that there was a factor 10A stuff out there? You you know, it'll be years, months or years before we actually understand what all these different levels actually mean. And if there's any you know, actual clinical benefit to treating based on the level. But, you know, I think that's part of what we do. Editor's commentary. This is a case series looking at the use of anti-10A assays in the ED. And the big take-home message for our purposes is that they can be resulted in time windows that make sense for patient management and that the most helpful number at this point might be a number of zero identifying patients who are not taking factor 10A inhibitors at all, removing the need for a discussion 
about the potential use of costly reversal agents in a critically ill patient. Abstract number six, higher intensity of 72-hour non-invasive cardiac test referral does not improve short-term outcomes among emergency department patients with chest pain. This is by Mark et al., and it wins the Rick Yukata Prize this month for telling you what you need to know in the title of the paper. Should we go to the next paper then? Not at all. This is a great paper. I love this paper. This is a really clever study done by the research group at uh, the Kaiser Northern California sort of research group, looking at the apparent value of early non-invasive stress testing for patients with chest pain. And this continues to be an issue, right? Like, you know, the background is that clinicians often order non or recommend non-invasive stress testing for patients with chest pain to be performed within 72 hours of an ED visit, sometimes within the ED, sometimes within 72 hours, whatever. And that had long been the established recommendation of the AHA and American College of Cardiology until very recently. A number of studies have called into question the utility of this practice, and the newest recommendations actually from the ACC and AHA do not necessarily recommend non-invasive stress testing for low-risk patients. However, the authors note that the retrospective and observational methodologies used for the underlying studies that informed those newest recommendations still leave some doubt, and that's what motivated this study. As I said before, this is a clever study design. Basically, they identified all the patients with chest pain seen in Kaiser EDs in Northern California from 2013 through 2019. They then divided them into three cohorts. Those that were seen by low-stress referral providers those that were seen by intermediate stress intensity referral providers, and those who were seen by the high intensity stress test referral providers. So they do this by looking at all their emergency physicians at the, at the Kaiser hospitals and calculating on a per doctor episode, how many of your patients did you refer for 72 hour stress test or got 72 hour stress test, right? And they do that for each provider. And then they, they just divide the providers into You do it a lot, you do it in the middle, you do it almost never. So high, low, and medium. Because Kaiser assigns patients at all of these places in Northern California, maybe true in Southern California as well, they assign patients on a round-robin basis. It is random whether you, as a patient presenting with chest pain, will get a low referral provider, a medium referral provider, or a high referral provider. So in that sense, patients who are randomly assigned to the high-intensity group, the people sent to non-invasive stress a lot, should have better outcomes, short-term outcomes, than the other ones if there's any value to getting stress tests as a you know outpatient within 72 hours. All that makes sense? So far, so good. So good. Okay. The specific outcomes assessed were the incidence of MACE, so major acute coronary events, and MACE-CR. At 60 days. And MACE-CR is when you take out the coronary revascularization part. So basically, it's the heart attack, the CHF, admission for one of those things, but without the coronary revascularization. I think that's important. I'll explain it in just a moment. So it's like a MACE minus CR. Minus the, you got a calf with a little stent or something like that. So they excluded all the patients who had STEMI and positive troponins and stuff. These were all patients who you, know, you could conceivably send on their way. You could be admitted, though. They could still be enter the court if you were admitted. Ultimately, they identified over 200,000 patients over the seven-year study period at their 21 institutions. A third were seen by each of the intensity providers. 12% of the patients seen by low-intensity providers had a stress test 
ordered and completed within their 72-hour period. It was the corresponding numbers for intermediate and high were 18 and 26%. So a big range, you know, went from 12 to more than twice that. The median age was 60. They, a lot of them had diabetes. A lot of them had known coronary disease. And they did this thing where they calculated the heart score, and the median heart score was three. All patients' characteristics were balanced across the treatment groups, the high, low, and medium, which is really good because they should be. It should be random, so that should balance itself out, and that, that looked pretty balanced. Okay, so what about the outcomes across the three intensities? The 60-day rate of MACE was actually higher in the high-intensity referral group compared to the intermediate or lower groups, about 11%. That's bad right? It's supposed to lower, if, if, if it's valuable to get a non-invasive stress test, and that's supposed to prevent you from getting into trouble, your risk of MACE should be lower than the groups where you just sent them on their way and said, you know, enjoy your life, you know, whatever. This was completely driven by an increased number of coronary revascularizations. You send people to get a non-invasive test, they come out non-specific. someone sticks a catheter up there, they find a little lesion, they put a, a stent in, but it doesn't translate to you know, fewer MIs and things. So it's more stuff gets done, but no fewer MIs or anything like so that. So thus, the, the minus CR. CR. That's right. So when they take the CR the, or the, the, the CR out of the equation, then everything's just flat. It's just you know, every group looks exactly the same. So that's the main finding, right? I mean, the, like high, low, medium intensity, there is a big variation in the amount of people that got non-invasive stress testing, but there's no variation in the amount of people who lived or died or got admitted for cardiac stuff uh, or you know, a heart failure, things like that. So overall, this is telling us that there's no value to non-invasive testing, at least within that parameter between the, what's low and high at Kaiser. And I think that's relatively important. So this all, of course, does need to be put into the context of that these are Kaiser members, ostensibly with good primary care who may have like sort of a better understanding of their cardiovascular risk than patients in other systems, which may allow people to calibrate a little bit better their need for non-invasive stress testing. And they may be able to be followed by their PMD. And so you could defer the decision for non-invasive cardiac testing to their PMD who might say, you know what, it's been a couple of days, you're still having a little chest pain, let's do it at that point. So that might not generalize to all ED populations, you know, certainly not our ED population, it's sort of a county environment. The other thing I think it's somewhat important is this study does not say never refer to outpatient stress tests. It just says that the lowest tertile has the same outcomes as the highest tertile, right? The lowest still had some stress test referrals, like 12% or something like that. So it's not saying never, never do it. We don't have data that suggests going down to 0% is a good idea. We just think that, you know, based on this data, that, you know, being a very aggressive stress tester compared to someone in your group who's a lower intensity one doesn't produce better outcomes. Still, I like this paper. It falls in line with a lot of others now that are demonstrating urgent non-invasive stress testing is seemingly not associated with improved short-term outcomes. And this is just one other cool methodology in a big population that sort of shows that or points in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, the, the methodology is cool. I love the message, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is a stressor, I think, yeah. for people working in the, God, I'm supposed to get these people followed how do up I do and that? how do I operationalize it? And what if I've already filled all the slots for mm -hmm. this week or whatever? So I think it gives you a little peace of mind. One thing I don't like, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, the word tertile. <laughs> is it not an incredibly <laughs> off-putting 
word. Yeah. It, you know, I'll tell you, it is a very off-putting word. It is, and, right? And frankly- As soon as you said it, honestly- yeah. You, you lost just, interest. Anything you okay. said after tertile- So, Dr. Mark at all, in the future, if you could do quartiles- just because that's obviously a much better. I'm going to say this. Quintiles? No, just call it thirds. Why you got to say tertile? Why can't you just say like the top third, the middle third, and the bottom third? Why you got to say tertile? <laughs> I hope you I hope you bring it home in the error's commentary because everything you say after tertile, I was just thinking about a tertile. I don't like it. No more tertiles on this program. Veto. Edit this commentary. This very large observational study from the Kaiser Integrated Healthcare System fails to demonstrate an association between more intense referral to non-invasive stress testing and improved outcomes for patients with chest pain, even those with high heart scores. While the results are not fully generalizable, they are consistent with nearly all other recent reports on this topic. Quick take. Abstract number seven. Effect of open-label placebo on children and adolescents with functional abdominal pain or irritable bowel syndrome, a randomized clinical trial, and this is by Nurko et al. from JAMA Pediatrics. This one is a quick take. So for decades, maybe even centuries or eons, I'm tertiles of years, I don't know, <laughs> researchers have held the belief that for a placebo to work, patients have to believe there is some possibility that it might work, that they're actually getting some kind of active treatment. Now, the authors here cite some data, very recent data in adults with functional abdominal pain, suggesting that a placebo may work even if the subjects know they're just getting a placebo, a sugar pill. Right. And this, is, this has clinical implications because you can't lie to patients, right? You can't say, this is a placebo. It's going to make you better when you know that it's just a placebo. Right. But if you can tell them it's a this is a placebo and it makes them better, that's a win-win. That's win. a win, right? It's a placebo. It should so do their thing, but if you want to believe it, it's okay. So they cite a couple of papers. Let's just like pull a question mark on those for a second, and then here they conduct a multi-center prospective crossover trial among kids eight to eighteen with functional abdominal pain or irritable bowel syndrome where subjects were randomized to receive an open-label placebo for three weeks and then like a washout period and a crossover to, you know, nothing, or the flip, right? So it just depends on which group you started with after a seven-day baseline observation period. Okay, so they said, this is placebo, yeah, right? It's but a sugar pill, it doesn't do anything. Here's the problem, right? That's what I was hoping for. When we read the abstract, that's, that's what, what yeah. it looked like they did. They didn't. So at the index visit, subjects were told, this is direct from the paper, it says they were getting a, quote, sugar pill with no medication in it, but were also told that this pill had been shown to have beneficial effects in adults with a similar medical condition. That's not quite the same as saying this is just sugar, it's not going to do anything. They basically planted the seed. Like they said, man, this could work. Worked in adults. Yeah, even though- I'm it, not that, sure yeah. why they did that. You know, it kind of bothered me a little bit. And that it gets into that lying piece, which exactly, is hard to- And the whole discussion is about how exactly we said, when you take away deception and all that stuff, but the, the, you know, so they only had 30 patients in this big effort uh, and pain scores were lower in the open label placebo group compared with the control group during the, I mean, the same patients in the crossover right. during the control period. 40 versus 45, and rescue medication use was a little bit lower. 
the percent of patients reporting global improvement was also higher with the placebo when they were in the placebo time window. And, you know, this concept is interesting because maybe, you know, if true, it would affect the way we, like you said, we deal with patients at the bedside, we think about running clinical trials, but I just don't feel like it really was billed as a placebo. And then, in my mind, there's a second issue of it wasn't blinded, obviously. They were getting a, you know, a fake, uh, they were getting a placebo in one period and nothing in the other. So you just don't know how much of it may be. These are kids, right, who were due to like a desire to sort of say whatever the researcher wanted to hear. Yeah, that thing you said helped in adults, I, that helped me too, I right. think, you know. So there so is social desirability bias. There's that potential. one too. Yeah. So, I, you know, I wish this one had like a little bit more teeth to it, mm. but I think it's cool that people are thinking about it. Editor's commentary. In this small study of children with functional abdominal pain, giving them an open-label placebo actually decreased pain and use of rescue medications. I'm a little skeptical about this working in other medical conditions or in research in general or at the bedside, as they were not just told it was a sugar pill that shouldn't work, but rather a sugar pill that did work. Further, the unblinded design introduces biases I just can't ignore. Abstract number eight, effectiveness of phosphomycin for the treatment of multidrug-resistant E. coli bacteremic UTI infections, a randomized clinical trial. This is by Sojo Dorado in JAMA Network Open. I think I can do this one fairly quick, though it's not a quick take. So we've covered a few articles over the past couple of years about extended-spectrum beta-lactamase E. coli or multidrug resistant E. coli. And the key trend is that we're seeing more and more of this among outpatients, right? Community-dwelling outpatients who present to the ED with various forms of urinary tract infection typically. And there are precious few treatment options for these patients that do not involve an IV carbapenem, okay? One emerging treatment is phosphomycin. And I know we were just talking about a clinical case, right? You yeah, had some, I had this case. Yeah. It was like a, well, it's a little, I don't know like, if you had this. Well, case, no, we'll my, my case was I know where yeah. when we were doing the paper selection, we were talking about it. it was I was working on conference coverage shift, yeah. and you know I, I saw a guy who had been diagnosed with one of these infections a month ago, and you know kind of somehow the culture result never got followed yeah. up. He was doing a little bit better, and he came back with the recurrence of symptoms, and I was faced with exactly this thing. Should I admit the guy yeah. for like some IV antibiotics? For a guy who has okay? like dysuria or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was like a relatively healthy guy, or can I give him something like a phosphomycin? So I had this clinical question just on one of my yeah. most recent shifts. Yeah, and it, it does come up fairly frequently. And phosphomycin, for what it's worth, is actually an old antibiotic that for some reason never really took off. I don't know all the history of that. It's a weird medication that has a, you know, a sort of, I won't go into the pharmacophysiology of it, because frankly, I don't understand it that much. Although I do know that it's not a macrolide, even though it sounds like a macrolide. It's not related to azithromycin or clarithromycin or erythromycin. It just has the mycin title in it. Importantly, I don't think this is typically reported on most clinical labs, but it is known to have really high effectiveness against most of these multidrug-resistant E. coli cell isolates. Okay. This study aimed to look at the utility of IV phosphomycin for the treatment of multidrug-resistant E. coli bacteremia caused by UTI compared to an IV comparator, which was usually a carbapenem, but sometimes it was ceftriaxone if it was sensitive to ceftriaxone. Ultimately, they had 143 patients that were enrolled and eligible for the intent-to-treat analysis. 
The primary outcome was clinical and microbiologic cure, meaning the patient got better and their urine culture didn't grow anything, etc. Phosphomycin actually had a slightly better microbiologic cure than the comparator drugs. However, IV phosphomycin had to be discontinued in 10% of the people due to adverse events. And those adverse events were basically uniformly inducing a worse heart failure. Apparently, IV formulation of phosphomycin has a high saline burden for some, you know, I don't understand it, but you have to get a lot of saline in the bag to reconstitute it. And then if you have CHF, then this could potentially worsen it. You know, interestingly, when I prescribed this phosphomycin, you know, we don't You do did an oral formulation. I did an oral formulation. You know, Mike and I don't do a lot of our own prescribing anymore. Thank you, President. Thank you, guys. But, uh, you know, it was, it's not a pill. It was like a powder that the a patient had to, had to, you know, dissolve in water, even at home. Like, mm. even taking it orally was like a little bit stranger than I was used to. So, yeah. just strange, I guess. Yeah, and, I think it's because it was this old, relatively unmarketed thing that's now sort of finding a way, you know, they haven't quite figured out all to make it, you know, tasty and all that kind of stuff yet. Anyway, when you add in those adverse events from the CHF, then the phosphomycin becomes not non-inferior in this study design, right? So it, it had a 68% rate of successful outcomes, and the other one was 78% rate of successful outcomes. The authors actually argue pretty forcefully, considering the, what they found, that they think this isn't true, that it was the open labelness, just going back to what you just said, and people knowing that these patients were getting a lot of saline load that made people go, you know what, I don't want to give them anymore. And this is causing more CHF or something like that. Because it wasn't really objective. It was just the providers saying that, you know, uh, we're done here. And maybe if it had been truly, you know, a placebo-controlled kind of thing or blinded situation, maybe they wouldn't have perceived the CHF. But, you know, there's no way to know about that. Anyway, it looks like overall phosphomycin is probably viable for sick patients with bacteremia due to these causes. Maybe there's this CHF thing, maybe there's not. But it certainly is, in terms of killing MDR, multidrug-resistant E. coli, it seems to work. So for sick patients, you know, I don't think phosphomycin has a clear role in the ED right now. We should probably be using a carbapenem. And if the ID folks and stuff say, hey, we want to preserve carbapenems in the future, let's switch them over to, you know, phosphomycin for people with ESBL or something like that, or, you know, who they suspect have ESBL, you know, whatever, that's, that's their business. Where I think it may have a greater role is the case you're describing, because it can be delivered orally. And so this is for people with lower urinary tract infections, cystitis kind of stuff, where you feel really stupid admitting them to a hospital to give them, you know, imipenem or something like that when they're otherwise completely fine just because they had a culture six months ago that showed that they had ESBL. But unfortunately, this paper just really doesn't speak to that patient population. So if I see something on that, we'll report it out on EMA. Right now, I think stay the course. Edit this commentary. And this small randomized controlled trial of IV phosphomycin versus IV comparator antibiotics for patients with bacteremia from UTI Phosphomycin had similar rates of clinical and microbiologic cure, but a higher incidence of adverse events resulting in treatment failure. Overall, the findings suggest IV phosphomycin may be a reasonable approach for some patients, provided they do not have a very high risk for heart failure. The role of oral outpatient phosphomycin for less complicated UTI is not discussed in this paper. Quick take. Abstract number nine. 
Risk of delayed intracranial hemorrhage after an initial negative CT in patients on DOAX with mild traumatic brain injury. This is by Tricato et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And this one's a quick take. So there's still debate around the optimal management of patients taking a direct oral anticoagulant who present with a head injury, right, a head injury, and then have a negative CT scan. So are you supposed to repeat the scan, OBS them, both, discharge them? This one here is basically another observational study looking to assess the incidence of delayed intracranial hemorrhage among patients taking DOAX and to determine what risk factors might be associated with delayed intracranial hemorrhage. This is from five centers in northern Italy, including all patients on DOAX with head trauma and initial negative head CT who got a repeat CT after 24 hours of observation in the ED. At least that's how the cohort is described up front. They have data from just over 1,400 patients, age 83 years, 55% female. The most common mechanism of injury by far was a fall, and the DOAX were mostly factor 10A inhibitors split between apixaban and rivaroxaban, and about a third of them were taking direct thrombin inhibitors in the form of dabigatran. The post-traumatic intracranial hemorrhage rate on the first CT was 6%. Okay, so... That seems what we yeah. roughly what we see, 5 that's, to 10%. That seems right. Yeah. Somewhere in the single-digit range, not the one. You yeah. know, like kind of close to a double-digit situation. Again, supporting the approach of they should all get a CT, even if the mechanism of injury is pretty mild. About two-thirds of the patients with a negative initial CT got a repeat CT at 24 hours, so about 900 out of that 1,400, and a delayed intracranial hemorrhage was seen in 1.5%. None of those 14 patients, is what it ended up being, required surgery or died. But not much was done to follow up the 424 patients who didn't get a repeat head CT. They do report that one of them presented back to the same ED eight days after that injury with a delayed bleed that resulted in their death. (laughs) So there's that, at least one. In terms of risk factors for delayed bleed, the methods here are really not that good. And there weren't that many patients with a delayed bleed, so I don't know what you expect. But they said loss of consciousness and amnesia in less than eight hours since the injury were associated with the outcome. But This is kind of irrelevant anyway, because they conclude that routine observation and delayed head CT are just not necessary across the board, which is what they say. And the big limitations to this paper, really for me, are the non-standardized approach to management. Again, not all these patients got a negative CT, a follow-up one, or any kind of follow-up at all. Which, you know, you could say, hey, if even one or two people in that no follow-up group got discharged home Maybe the reason you could find them is because they're in the morgue. But they didn't even try to find them. You know, that's the thing that's a little bit different than some of the other papers. But again, worth including because it reiterates these same numbers. The numbers are similar, though. Yeah, the hit rate initially is about, you know, 5 to 10% and closer to 1% in delayed bleed rate. But those delayed bleeds can happen, you know, uh, late Many days, yeah. So I think it affirms the... The general practice. I think the, the, the general trend here is to just not It's do rare it. to see yeah. a paper saying otherwise. Yes. Editor's commentary. This is the largest published study to date looking at the value of repeat scans for patients taking DOACs with minor head trauma, and they report a delayed bleed rate of 1.5%. I wish they had made an attempt to follow up patients who did not get a repeat scan, but their delayed bleed rate is in line with other studies on the topic. 
Routine 24-hour repeat scan is not a mandate, but characteristics of patients on DOACs who may be at higher risk for delayed bleeds remains elusive. Abstract number 10, clinical failure and abscess treatment, the role of ultrasound and incision and drainage. This is by Golding et al. It's in CGEM. This study looks at the adjunctive role of ultrasound in the management of suspected cutaneous abscess. And frankly, it's amazing to me how a simple concept like abscess management has resulted in so many controversies. I mean, can you believe this? It's like, you know, to pack or not. Those were the early ones back in the day. (laughs) To irrigate or not. Remember irrigation? Oh, yeah. Some people still do irrigation. I do. I know. That's why it's a country. With like, you know, hydrogen peroxide. (laughs) Stuff like that. Yeah, stuff in their state. I saw sulfuric acid irrigation last week. What are you talking about? Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You removed the abscess. Loop drainage. Antibiotics. Antibiotics. Ultrasound. Do you use ultrasound as a static image? Or do you do it as a dynamic thing while you're like scooping out everything? Do you oh. use it to figure out if there is an abscess right, or the a- size of the cavity? Exactly. Like to see, you know, if it can be needle aspirated or needs yeah. IND? This is, frankly, I'm getting tired of it. <laughs> this study is a retrospective look at patients who presented to one of four EDs affiliated with the University of Massachusetts system. Why it's in CGEM, anybody's guess. I have no idea. Um, That's not that far from the Canadian border. Okay, but it's still Boston, I feel, is like pretty firmly American, you know, lest I say, when I went to Boston, I went to Paul Revere's house. You know what? All that kind of stuff. You know, Mike, you and I have published in CGEM. I know. I know. Somebody's talking about I had gone on vacation to Vancouver right before that. I was feeling, you know. Maybe these authors did too. Fair enough. Maybe I they said, went to Quebec. I simply said, I don't know why. I didn't, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. There's not a good reason. I just don't know what it is. That should be in there, by the way, in every description. Anyway, so they look at these people who went to these four things. They actually had very high quality chart review methods, which included having structured abstract technique, blinding of the abstractors to the study question. Pretty good stuff, actually. Over a two-year study period, they found 820 patients who met their definition of suspected abscess. And it's a little bit of a funky definition. Of those 823, 609 had follow-up data. So there were more than 200 with no outcome data at all, no follow-up data at all, and they just didn't enroll them. They didn't even tell us what's going on with those patients, which is a little bit weird. Usually you sort of enroll them, call them part of table one and two, and then just say, you know, we, we don't have outcome data on those folks. Yeah, and there's no differences between the two groups and, and that we'll kind get of to thing. That. Yeah, and so that constituted the study cohort, those 609. Overall, of them had an IND performed, just over half had an ultrasound performed, and 15% of them had a treatment failure. And treatment failure was defined as, you know, they came back for an IND later on. Crudely, of the patients who had an ultrasound, the failure rate was 13%, and of those that did not have an ultrasound, the failure rate was 17%, and this was not statistically different. The main thing that drove the treatment failure was the failure to do an IND on the index visit. So, of all those people with, quote, suspected IND, the ones that didn't get an, uh, an IND on the initial visit had a 25% treatment failure, which actually is, I think, a very important teaching point, which is if you suspect an IND, don't an, an be abscess. dissuaded. I'm sorry. Yeah, an abscess. Don't be dissuaded. Go for it. Open it up. You know, you're going to be right. And, when you're, and, and if you're wrong, it's a small nick and, you know, and you avoid them coming back a lot of times. So that's, that's one sort of teaching point, I think. 
The authors then did a multivariate regression interacting ultrasound and IND and claimed that this interaction is significant, but they don't display the regression table at all. It's like not there. There's no, we don't know what the coefficients are, how wide the confidence limits are. So I, I can't really just take it at face value. I mean, it's literally not in the paper. The truth is, I don't think this study adds very much. There are just too many problems and awkward features like this lack of detail on the statistical side. But I think most important is that 25% of the patients that we initially talked about, those 200, were not included because they didn't have follow-up data. And we have no idea how this group differs from those who did enter the cohort. This is basically a form of survivorship bias or immortal time bias and likely heavily skews the findings. I think Swami and Ken a few months ago talked about survivorship bias, but think about it like this. The way you end up in this study is if you have some outcome data, right? Okay, fine. The outcome data includes the need for a repeat IND. If the patient was treated and never needed a repeat IND, they would be much less likely to have outcome data, and therefore they'd be excluded from the study. Those that remain or survive to be in the cohort are therefore way more likely to have needed a repeat IND, and the overall treatment failure rate is likely to be way falsely elevated high. If the ones who did not make it in in the first place were disproportionately uncomplicated INDs that did not get an ultrasound, which is actually really likely, right? The super simple ones, they're just ready to pop. You know, that's really likely. Then this study unfairly excludes them and biases against the more simple approach. So that's, in my view, the biggest problem with the study. It's a really, really big one. They could have told us something about those patients, like you suggested, who were excluded from the get-go. And if they were the same and had the same initial IND rate and the same ultrasound use rate on their index visit, then maybe I would be more likely to sort of take this all in. But I, I don't think that we can do that based on what I'm presented in this paper. For what it's worth, there have been a number of stronger studies examining this topic in recent years. And you know, I think probably the most well-known is that prospective study from Bill Maurer et al. And that was from, I think, two or three years ago from uh, UCLA and other areas. And it demonstrated that clinicians were almost always right about the presence or absence of an abscess without ultrasound, like almost always. In the few instances in which the physician was truly uncertain, ultrasound seemingly was useful, but that occurred in like less than 10% of all cases. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Personally, in my practice, I IND on the basis of history and physical alone and resort to ultrasound guidance only when, you know, I'm either really not sure or more likely when I unexpectedly don't get pus. And then I'll sometimes put that ultrasound thing to say like, was it in there? Did I not go deep enough or what's going on there? That's a personal practice. Editor's commentary. This is a substantially limited paper that purports to demonstrate a lower rate of treatment failure when ultrasound is used as an adjunct for skin and soft tissue infections. Methodologic concerns render this conclusion tenuous at best. Abstract number 11. Impact of the utilization of 500 ml IV bags on crystalloid resuscitation volumes administered to trauma patients. This is by Hall et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So administering large volumes of crystalloids to trauma patients, to sick trauma patients specifically, has been shown to exacerbate metabolic complications and can worsen dilutional coagulopathy and create some acidosis. So you're not supposed to give you know, sick trauma patients a bunch of crystalloids. That's the bottom line. In the most recent edition of ATLS, they actually removed the recommendation for giving two liters of crystalloid before giving blood, 
uh, and the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Guidelines, which they cite in this paper, say that uh, in shock, crystalloid should only be used if blood is unavailable and its value should be readdressed every 500 cc's to sort of say, okay, should we be switching to blood now or not? You shouldn't wait a liter is sort of what everybody's recommending. Due to ease of access of crystalloids and traditional teaching for most of us, this paradigm shift away from a crystalloid resuscitation has been a little bit slower than expected. We do still tend to give people these two liters of crystalloids, just like stuck in the brain. The aim of this study, it's kind of interesting, was to assess the change in crystalloid volume given to trauma patients after a change was made in the ED, where all the one liter bags were swapped out for 500 cc bags. So it was just an ED-wide situation that no more, what you can't call for a liter, you have to call for 500 cc bag now. This is kind of like a, the behavioral economists would call this like a nudge. Right? Yeah, I yeah. think that's right. This is a retrospective evaluation from a single level two trauma center, not a level one trauma center, of a consecutive sample of patients who met trauma activation criteria and were seen in the trauma bay and got at least some crystalloids, right? They didn't get any crystalloids at all. They weren't included. Basically, the bags were all switched on December 1st, 2016, out with the old, in with the new. And the two time periods they're comparing are the year before that, exactly a year, and the year after that, exactly a year, with no washout period in the middle or sort of adjustment. The primary outcome was mean total crystalloid volume infused from time of injury to hospital admission and secondary outcomes included the mean total crystalloid volume infused prior to administration of blood products, the proportion of patients who received less than two liters of total crystalloids, time to initiation of blood products, and mortality. So although there were just over 1,200 trauma patients seen in the two time periods, almost 900 of them were excluded from their analysis because of missing documentation. And it doesn't say anywhere in this paper what was missing. So they're just gone. And I, I can't explain that. It's that doesn't it. seem like very good for a trauma center. <laughs> so patient characteristics were similar between the two time periods and of the ones who were left, of the patients they analyzed, with an average age in the 40s, blunt trauma making up 85% of cases, and a mean ISS of 15. The mean fluid administers was less after stocking only the 500cc bags. It was just over a liter versus just over a liter and a half. After the swap, a higher proportion of patients got less than two liters total, 90% versus 63%. And of patients who got blood, the amount of crystalloid given prior to blood was also less, about a liter versus about 1.7 liters. Overall ED mortality was lower, they say, 0.5 versus 3%, but the time to blood was the same at just about 50 minutes. So there's some pretty significant limitations to this paper. I really wanted to love it when I read the title, and I got pretty deep into it before I started to say, pump the brakes here. They excluded a lot of patients for a variety of reasons. No descriptions like the last paper Mike reviewed of how these excluded patients may have differed from those included. They certainly could have given that in a table one form because it was in their trauma registry, right. you know, like just their age or ISS, their mechanisms, some really basic things. They talk about a mortality difference, but the numbers are way too small to actually look at any significance of this difference. And like Mike said before about the nudge, 
There's no way of knowing if it was switching the bag size that resulted in less fluids or something else, right? Maybe there was like a massive educational effort that's like, here's why we're switching the bags. Like this is, you're not supposed to give these people a crystalloid, blah, blah, blah. So it may have been something else entirely besides, although I like the idea of just having smaller bags, but one for me that wasn't mentioned in this paper at all that I found kind of interesting was, okay, it's better to give trauma patients less fluid, let's nudge toward a 500cc bag. How would this have impacted the resuscitation of other types of ED patients, right? Those one liter bags were just gone. So right. if you, you know, the same mentality that's like, okay, well, I hung two bags in a trauma patient. That's what I used to do. That should be sufficient. Would that cause harm in a septic patient or right. something like that? Because now we're, we have that same nudge, that same philosophy. I thought that would have been an interesting discussion point in this paper, which wasn't mentioned at all. Yeah. Hmm. You know, this is one, these quasi-experimental designs, obviously, where, you know, you before and after studies, you get a lot of this kind of stuff where you're like, is it due to this or is it due to something else? And um, I'm just trying to think in my head here, you know, sometimes they point out or they do a graph of like the fluid use and then they show you like at December 31st, you know, what happened or sorry, January 1st, what happened. And if there was a sudden drop, then I think maybe I would buy it a little bit with this, uh, that no, it was the saline no, bag. No chart, no flow. Right, because education is slow, right? I mean, we know that that's slow and it's, it like takes months. For, that's why people give washout periods because they're like, we did an educational intervention. We gave it eight months before the last of our yeah. interns and attendings attended the session. Yeah, no but, washout but period. switching the bag, that really, if that's, if that's the true effect, that should be almost well, immediate. Well, see, now you're making me go into the weeds. I already kind of said oh, some negative. No, it's okay. I was I talking more about it in the general terms. Here's, for the the, pro- here's for, another problem, okay? They say there was a wholesale switch, right, at that point. But the truth is a lot of patients were excluded because they got fluid from two different types of bags, too. So there were some one liter bags around Lying still. Around. I, I just don't know how much, why they were there. So, uh, you know, the more I, the deeper I got, sure. the, the more you got a little bit, but I, I think the idea is kind of cool. No, I think big picture, like these are the kinds of things we need help with in the emergency. It's busy. It's hard to do our job. It really is. You're like you said, you're taking care of a septic patient, give fluid to, you're taking to a, taking care of a trauma patient, less fluid. It's all very difficult. And we need those kinds of behavioral nudges to help us make the right decision when you're busy, harried, it's the middle of the night, all that kind of stuff. So I, that's why we selected this. I like the idea a lot. But yeah, I, I hear your point. Editor's commentary. In this before and after observational study, the authors suggest that a simple intervention of swapping out your one liter crystalloid bags for 500cc ones can get you closer to Trauma Society recommendations for fluid amounts. This seems simple enough but there's no way to know if it was the bag swap that actually caused the change or how a wholesale change of your fluid bag size might impact the resuscitation of other critically ill patients. Abstract number 12 is emergent cardiac outcomes in patients with normal electrocardiograms in the emergency department. This is by Winters et al., and it too is in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So this study provides a modern look at the value of the computer-determined normal ECG. They set up the study by noting that most EDs require immediate physician review of ECGs, which can be distracting and intrusive when the physician's doing something else, like you know, do an HMP, trying to connect with the patient, put in a central line, things like that. With thresholds for obtaining ECGs in the pre-hospital triage 
very low, these interruptions do add up. So is it worth it to have the physician and tech drop everything to get the computer read normal EKG or ECG overread by an emergency physician? Make sense? Oh, yeah. Okay. You're saying if the computer says normal, normal, can I just trust it? Like yeah, if it's or at abnormal. At a minimum, in the like, you don't have to drop everything to go have some attending look at this and sign the thing and do all that kind of stuff. You know, so that's the basic premise. And then there's some other research questions that flow from that. The authors conducted a retrospective review of all the ECGs at UC Davis, ED, that were interpreted by the Muse software system as normal rhythm, normal ECG. Had those two guys on it, that was the thing. With the goal of determining how often these normal interpretations were wrong and or associated with urgent cardiovascular interventions. All these ECGs underwent cardiologist interpretation, which was considered the gold standard. And it's not clear if the cardiologists were doing this as part of the research study or as part of clinical care. I'm pretty sure it was as part of the clinical care because there's no cardiologists on the author list. And I think this is like, you know, how cardiologists get an extra few bucks by going over ECGs and putting in some comment. I think that's what they used as their gold standard interpretation, although that wasn't 100% clear from the reading of the article. The authors then conducted a structured chart review to determine lab values, troponin values, as well as clinical outcomes, most specifically the need for urgent PCI, percutaneous intervention. For cases in which the cardiology read was different from the computer read, right? So the computer obvious to be included, computer had to say normal. If the cardiologist read did not say normal, the authors determined whether this was a potentially clinically significant difference or not. Clinically significant disagreements included like a different rhythm. These were a priori assessed. Different rhythm, ST segment depressions or elevations, T wave inversions. There may have been something else, but I think that's mostly it. Things that were considered not clinically significant were like when they said, like sometimes the cardiology read would read like PACs no longer present, right? Or, you know, something like that. So they would say, the cardiologist just didn't agree that it was normal. They would say, okay, that, that's a clinically insignificant overread, even though it technically doesn't read. It's totally normal or whatever. The chart review methods appeared to be very strong. So they found 8,000 ECGs during the study period. Of those, only 21%, so 1,700, had an automated reading of normal. So just to put things in perspective, when you're thinking about how could this impact, you know, only tw- most of them are still read as abnormal in some way. And what they did is they examined the most recent thousand. They decided not to go through all 1,700, that the thousand would give them good enough point estimates of the things. And, and they actually ended up having to exclude 11 cases for some reason or another. So they end up with 989. They intended to have 1,000, but 11, there was something else going on. Mean age was 50, 50% were female. The cardiology interpretation was discrepant in 18.6% of the ECG. So quite a large number, 184 of them. But only 60 of those were even potentially clinically significant. Okay? That actually is only, that's 6% of ECGs had a potentially clinically significant one. Of those, only 10 of them, 10 out of the thousand, were possibly due to ischemia, right? All the others, there was something else, you know, his T wave is tinted or something like that. Only 10% were possibly due to ischemia, and none of those 10 ended up having positive troponins or getting a PCI or any kind of emergent intervention as far as that goes. So, they basically are concluding that cardiology overread really is not that discrepant. Of the 989 normals, so the computer-read normals, 
none of them were taken to the cath, whether they were overread as abnormal or not. None of them were taken emergently to cath, actually. Six of them ultimately went to cath during their hospitalization, and none of those were found to have a fresh thrombus, right? A couple of them had a PCI, and those patients were patients that had like known prior cabbage, and they were having something going on, and they decided to take them to cath, and they're like, ah, your stent is like 80% stenosed. We're going to PCI it. But they didn't have something that looked like a fresh acute MI on their cath report. So basically, that was, that's it. There were only two cases that got a PCI. One was like that, and the other one was some guy that they described where the PMD had already decided to cath them, and he went to the ER, and so they just decided to do it while they were in the hospital instead of like you know waiting or whatever, and then they had some lesion that they went ahead and got, even though, again, it wasn't a fresh thrombus. So for me, there are at least a couple of good take-home points. First, when the machine reads normal, there's almost never anything there that would warrant immediate change in management. So in that sense, those ECGs could probably wait for overread until the MD sees the patient in sort of the normal course of their treatment plan. Of course, based on the study, only about 20% are normal. So this change in practice would not have an enormous impact in the number of interruptions you might have you know, to interpret ECGs. Second, a computer-read normal ECG is a very, very good indicator that the patient does not have an ACS going on. In this cohort, almost none ended up with anything even close to an ACS. And this is highly reassuring and conforms with the sort of traditional teaching that very few normal EKGs will ultimately have an MI. The main limitation of this study is that patients with normal ECGs did not get a gold standard test for MI or major cardiac event. The conclusions are drawn from the outcomes from the ED visit and the subsequent hospitalization. If the authors or, you know, whoever, the clinicians, had used the normal ECG to define that the patient was well and could be discharged, then necessarily it would result in the observation that normal ECGs were associated with discharge, you know, or end without cath. One would really need outcome data, say at 30 days or 60 days, to prove that this is safe. And that just wasn't done in this study. So it's not perfect. But I still think it probably, it rings very true. I was just going to say, it's not perfect, but this definitely feels like the right message yeah. to come out of this thing. Yeah. That when you see normal, normal, normal on the EKG, it actually, it's not like 80% of them are read as normal. Yeah. You know, it's only a fifth of them are read yeah. as normal, and it should be very reassuring. It yeah. is reassuring. It is very reassuring. And it was in this case. Editor's Commentary. This single-site retrospective study shows that computer-interpreted normal ECGs generally portend excellent short-term clinical outcomes. Though cardiologists frequently disagree with the normal interpretation, these discrepancies are almost never clinically important. Abstract number 13. Oral ondansetron administration in children seeking ED care for acute gastroenteritis, a patient-level propensity-matched analysis. This is by Powell et al., from Annals of Emergency Medicine. I think this is our only Annals paper this month. Of, memory of serves. emergency medicine? I have Annals one of, of internal medicine. medicine. I have one of internal medicine too, of emergency medicine. So ondansetron has been shown to reduce vomiting, need for IV fluids, and hospitalization in kids with AGE in clinical trials. Interestingly, reduced hospitalizations and use of IV fluids have not been demonstrated as convincingly when looking at real-world data from large administrative databases. This is likely due to a lack of detail in the data and confounding in these large observational samples. But here the authors perform a pre-planned secondary analysis from two multicenter trials 
evaluating the use of probiotic versus placebo in kids aged 3 to 18 months with AGE focused on oral ondansetron use, which was not part of the study protocol, this probiotic versus no probiotic thing. So this was just physician discretion. So the, the study was probiotics versus none, but the doctors could decide this person's vomiting a lot. Let's give them ondansetron or not. So that becomes an observational study of ondansetron. You got it. So the two ED-based trials were the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, perhaps you've heard of it, PCARN, Go on. Probiotic Study, and the Pediatric Emergency Research Canada, PERC, Probiotic Regimen for Outpatient Gastroenteritis Utility of Treatment, the ProGut Trial. The outcomes of interest were to see oh, if... Anti-gut trial. Yeah. We got to get somebody out there cooking on that one right now. You're pro-gut, and I'm anti-gut. <laughs> yeah. So you take it out when you get in there. I like it. A little you debate. Know, America is a very polarized place. <laughs> yeah. ASEP. The next ASEP, you have a pro-gut, anti-gut, straight up. But you don't tell anybody knuckle, what it's about. Bare-knuckle brawl. You, know, you just bring people up there, and you put them on the table. You're pro-gut, you're anti-gut, and you just see what they say. You don't tell them it's about Ondansetron or probiotics. Take two young faculty members up there too scared to ask what yeah. they're supposed to talk about. And then just let them go. This is a really good idea. ASAP planners, if you're listening, once we get ASAP back in San Francisco, yeah, you're welcome. So the outcome of interest here was to see if ondansetron use altered IV fluid administration and frequency of vomiting and diarrhea during 24 hours after discharge. They had about 800 patients to include in their analysis, almost exactly half of which got ondansetron, and its use was associated with older age, more vomiting episodes, and being treated in the U.S. as opposed to being treated in Canada. In the unadjusted analysis, there was no difference in any of the examined outcomes between the groups. But, as this was not a trial, to account for confounding, the authors used a propensity score match on relevant characteristics like age, duration of vomiting, number of episodes of vomiting, and level of dehydration to divide the sample into ondansetron cohort, which was 264 cases, and then 264 no ondansetron patients who were propensity matched right. to those two. Same probability of getting ondansetron between the two groups, right. but one got it, one didn't. That's exactly right. So in the propensity-adjusted analysis, kids that got ondansetron were less likely to get IV fluids at the index visit at an odds ratio of 0.5 but there were no differences in hospitalization, IV fluids by 72 hours, or episodes of vomiting or diarrhea in the 24 hours after discharge. In a subset of kids with clinical dehydration, because this was part of two really big network studies, they had a lot of clinical detail on these kids. So when they looked at ones who, by the scale they were using, were dehydrated, ondansetron use was associated with both less IV fluids at the index visit, we knew that already, and lower rates of hospitalization within 72 hours. So the main limitations of this paper are as follows in my mind. One, propensity score matching, right? Although well done in this case, they had a lot of really, really good clinical details on the patients, they might still be missing an important variable associated with the outcome. Number two, we don't know which kids were sent home with prescriptions for ondansetron or if they just got them in the ED. Like, we have absolutely no idea, and that could definitely impact most of the outcomes they were looking at. It shouldn't impact the, the positive one, the, ED flu the IV fluids of the index visit, but it certainly could impact everything else. And number three, 
there is no comment on this paper on presence of either a delayed diagnosis of something more serious or masking more serious illness, which although largely debunked by most studies looking at this topic, is still sort of something in the brain of, I think, clinicians as a concern of, am I going to you know, mask an appendicitis for three days because I'm giving them on death? So they don't comment on that in this paper. But from other papers, we can say that it's probably not as real a concern as we fear it is. Yeah, I feel like with ondansetron for peds, like when this started, and that's been what, a good 10 years since we've been uh, sort of prescribing ondansetron for children, for little children especially, I feel like the, my initial thought was, oh, this is silly, you know, but just every paper, paper after paper after paper after paper show over and again that this is, you know, this is a really good strategy. And obviously at this point, I've like completely gone the full circle and totally do it. This is good information. Yeah, I think it's good. And I think for me, you know, I was sort of like, oh, we kind of know this already. And it, because it's a really well done, really well written yeah. paper in the annals, they, in their discussion and introduction section, they do talk a lot about this, like the fact that these things we, you say is, is pretty clearly obviously positive have actually not been well replicated in these sort of real world looks at data. So this is the closest we have to a real world look. And again, it looks positive. Edit this commentary. This is one of the first reports using close to real world data with a propensity-matched analytic strategy to show a clinical benefit of ondansetron in little kids with AGE. I would use it liberally, while waiting for future studies to clarify if there actually is a subset of kids who might benefit the most. Abstract number 14. Assessing the necessity for the joint above and below radiography approach for lower extremity long bone fractures in children. This is by Cotter et al. in Pediatric Emergency Care. Emergency physicians often perform x-rays in the joint above and or below the site of suspected injury. Some of this may be due to confusion about the exact location of the injury, which may be especially challenging in young kids. They won't move their leg or whatever. But I think more often this is driven by habits developed in training in which consulting orthopedists make it seem like they cannot possibly evaluate a patient's injury unless they have a full skeletal survey. Well, sometimes it's not even like they make it seem that way. They just, they just won't. won't. Yeah, they just right. won't. They'll yeah. be like, oh, you broke his ankle. Mm, did okay. you? I'll wait. Shoulder. I'll come down and see them. Yeah, once you've done the torso films <laughs> yeah. and that. Yeah, it's a, you know, obvious stalling technique, but maybe there's some value. Who knows? We all know this is, you know, relatively pointless exercise that we rarely find injuries that were not predicted on clinical exam. And so this paper aims to quantify just exactly what rarely means, right? So that's, that's what they're doing here. The author list has a mix of emergency medicine and orthopedic surgeon co-authors, so I like that. And the study itself was conducted at a single site. It was a retrospective analysis of children who presented to the ED at Penn State Milton Hershey Medical Center. Yeah, see, but the question here is what was the hypothesis, right? Because you think these ED docs and ortho docs were working together, or you think they <laughs> were in like, opposition? You're wrong. You're, we do need. We do, oh yeah. Well, let's study it and figure they, out. They didn't. I don't think they explicitly stated, you know, which authors were right and which ones were wrong. I should check though, because there are, you know, you know, with those author affiliations, I look at them very frequently on these kinds of tapes. There's like a a one, two, three, yeah. A, B, C, and one of those might be number C. This author had the wrong hypothesis. <laughs> And I think that's another thing that should be put onto the linked onto these things. As I've said before, the online edition of all these papers should have the pronunciation of the authors. They deserve it. But also 
they should point out which authors had the wrong hypothesis and have been proven wrong because, you know, they get all the same credit, right? But that's not fair. That's not fair. The one you, who was I wrong. I think you're taking it one step too far. <laughs> I, think I think it's great. But I do, in my head. Because in our papers, that would always my, be like, I was right and you were wrong. That's obviously not true. <laughs> in my head, though, I am I am anticipating a butting of heads here. That's what I think went into this paper. All you're right. kind of acting like they're working together. I'm, I'm the cynical one on this. Uh, all right. All right. Anyway, they included patients with fracture of the femur, tibia, or fibula. They excluded cases with known bone pathology like osteogenesis imperfect. This is a children's hospital. You know, kids come in with all sorts of problems that make it, you know, really complicated. So they sort of excluded that. And they also excluded patients who were a level one trauma activation. They don't explicitly state what that is, but it sounds like what we'd call a trauma team activate, you know, like some really sick kid. So the sickest of the sick. Other trauma activations were included. So I think that's important. The primary outcome was the incidence of ipsilateral fracture and or dislocation above or below the affected area. They classified the mechanisms as high-risk injuries or high-mechanism injuries or low-risk injuries according to whether they were actually a trauma activation, again, not the highest level, or they were just, you know, sort of somebody who was running down the street, tripped and fell kind of thing. The chart review methods were okay. They were not very strong. Over a three-year study period, they identified 241 patients who met all the inclusion and exclusion criteria. 207, or 85%, were low-risk injuries, and 15% were high-risk injuries. Nine cases total, or 3.7%, had a concomitant ipsilateral injury, so met that primary outcome. Among the low-risk patients, only four, or 2%, had one of those injuries. Among the high-risk patients, five out of the 34, 15% had one of those, you know, sort of ipsilateral injuries. They list out the nine cases, what they were. And for the high-risk ones, it sounds awful. I mean, they had things like snowmobile accident, farming accident, and the injuries were, I mean, like open femurs with pelvic fractures and tibia fractures and things like that. I'm like, okay, you know. I'm not trying to be parsimonious with uh, x-rays and those kinds of things. For the low-risk ones that were 85% of the cases, the missed fractures were all, or not, I shouldn't say missed, they weren't missed. They were the ipsilateral fractures were all originating from something that was like slipped and fell while playing football or baseball or something like that. And the types of injuries were much more mundane. They were, you know, avulsion fractures of navicular bone, things like that. Do they, and you may have said this and maybe I missed it, are they commenting on if they had like an abnormal physical exam too? Like, you know, because if, if you, you know, broke your ankle, but your knee hurts, you're obviously going to image that as well. Are these like totally normal exams or they don't say at all? So it's totally unclear how many of these ipsilateral concurrent injuries were not suspected, but were only discovered on the basis of joint above and below routine Well, that's X-rays. too bad. Yeah, I know. But- it can't be more than 2%. It can't be, right? Because that's the total number. So if any of those were suspected, which I'm sure a good chunk were, it's even lower than that. Okay. And they basically conclude, their official conclusion, the joint emergency medicine orthopedic conclusion is that that risk rate is just not high enough to justify getting x-rays on everybody joint above and below. And this says nothing, nothing. I think this is really important actually about all the x-rays that are gotten because you think the person might have a fracture, 
And you're like, well, they might have a fracture. And if they do, I'm going to get a joint above and below. So even though they only have 20% chance of having a fracture, let's get you know six different x-rays. And that's really dumb. So even in the context of fracture, it's not worth doing. But you know, certainly not worth doing if the patient, you're not sure that they have a fracture. Again, they correctly conclude that you shouldn't do this. It's a waste of time and money when the mechanism is low. When the mechanism's high, such as the cases, like I said, farm machinery accident, or these are real, MVC versus tractor trailer, okay, a more liberal use of x-rays, including perhaps joint above and below may be indicated, but this is a tiny minority of like really sick, very injured children. Personally, almost never spontaneously do joint above and below. If I find a fracture that requires orthopedic consultation, which is very rare, you know, most of the time there's no fracture. When there is a fracture, you don't need a consult. When that happens, I'm more than happy to ask them if they would like me to get, you know, a joint above or below if they're able to assess the patient, but I don't do it spontaneously. I think that's the right approach. When you ask, are you also going to send them this paper and say, oh, I don't know if you've seen this data from your illustrious orthopedic at all. I don't intend to do that. My experience with educating Orthopedic residence has not been entirely positive. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go Actually, one. St- I'm going to go one step further and say your experience educating emergency medicine residents also met. You know what? A little uh, bit of controversy. <laughs> Editor's commentary. This is a relatively small single-site study that shows that patients with low risk mechanism and who have a leg fracture have a two percent risk of a second injury in the joint above or below the primary fracture site. Emergency physicians should not routinely x-ray joints above and below a suspected fracture due to this low risk of injury. Abstract number 15. Safety and outcomes of midline catheters versus peripherally inserted central catheters for patients with short-term indications, a multi-center study, and this is by Swaminathan et al. from JAMA Internal Medicine. So this is by Swami? No. No. It's by another Swami. (laughs) So, by way of background, PICC lines, although inserted, you know, they can be done at the bedside, even in ICUs. Oftentimes, if these are being done in the ED, you're sending them somewhere, sort of like a nursing suite to get it done. They're still central lines, right? Because their tips go right up to the end of the right atrium, and thus they have the same potential complications of other central lines, including infection and DVT. Midlines are basically shorter PICs. So, just the tubing itself is other shorter. That's, that's Yeah, other thick. They end distal to the shoulder and outside of the great vessels in the chest. And although theoretically, this should reduce the risk of the aforementioned line complications, data on this topic has been kind of mixed with some papers saying, hey, midlines actually cause more complications and right, have I think some what's failure driven, rates and things like that. But what's driven a lot of the interest in the midline is that you don't have to report those complications as clapses, right? Isn't That's that the exactly point? That's exactly right. So they are Even not- Even they might cause more problems. I like it. That's right. So yeah, and with the big focus on that now, midlines are gaining a little bit of popularity. So the authors of this paper use data from the Hospital Medicine Safety Consortium to compare outcomes between patients who had pick lines placed versus those who had midlines placed for the indication of difficult vascular access or antibiotic therapy for 30 or fewer days. The methods here are really excellent in terms of their structured chart review that they performed, their outcome definition of how they defined the things like infection, clot, and stuff like that, and their statistical methods, which are really just spot on. 
they had data on almost 6,000 picks and just over 5,000 midlines placed over a two-year period. The groups were similar in terms of demographics and comorbidities, but did differ in terms of indication for the line. So midlines were more common for difficult access, and picks were more common for needing short-term antibiotics. The median dwell time was definitely different. It was 14 days with a range of 7 to 27 days for picks versus 7 days with a range of 3 to 12 days for midlines. The overall unadjusted risk of complications was about 10% in picks versus 4% in midlines. The most common complication was occlusion, 7% versus 2%. Clab C, and they said any infection here for the purpose of this paper, they're going to call, you know, right. a, it's not a li- technically a clab They're going to take away the C. Central line. They're going to take away the C. They're just going to call it like a line Lab-C. associated. Lab-C. Other clab C. <laughs> Lab C. Other Swami studying other pick with an outcome of other clab C. So like they it. said that it was more common with picks at a rate of 1.6% versus 0.4%, and DVTs were the same at 1.5 and 1.4%, respectively. After adjusting for patient characteristics, comorbidities, catheter lumens, dwell time, a lot of different things, PICS still had an overall higher complication rate with pretty similar numbers, an odds ratio of 1.99. So two times odds more likely of having a complication. The result, like I said, this is a really well done statistical paper. They ran several sensitivity analyses and the results held across all of them. So The biggest limitation in this study really is simply the observational design, right? We don't know why a particular line was chosen over the other type of line for each individual patient. And it is possible that unmeasured variables might impact their observed findings. But this is a pretty well-done paper in JAMA Internal Medicine, and I'm feeling like if you have some say on this, you know, what kind of a line you're going to get put in, I'm probably going to choose a midline at this point. And I think this data is compelling. And I, yeah, I'm going to ask, because I, as I was reading this paper, I'm like, this is really cool. And this is a question that maybe is going to make me sound very dumb in this recording, but I'm going to yeah. ask it anyway. Probably not uh, dumber than usual. Why can't we do these lines? Why can't a, like a physician learn how to do these lines? We, we never do them. Well, we always send them to like a pick nurse, mm-hmm. pick line nurse. Why can't we learn how to do these? I just have never thought about it before. Yeah, no, I don't know. They're done very commonly. We do central lines. (laughs) But that's kind of my point, right? I mean, we do other central lines. This this is a central line. I wonder why- It's a half a central line. Are you talking about the pick itself or the- Either. The pick or the midline. I'm just saying this is something I've never even thought about before. Why like a, you know, APP or a physician or something can't be trained, can't learn how to do this. Yeah. I don't know. For the pick, I sort of get it, right? I think when I hear the statistics that you're you're citing there, the pick sounds like a line that's being put in there on average to hang out for two or three weeks or more. And that's just not what we do, right? Like there's a sterility question. There's a whole bunch of things that probably should be reserved for for people. But these midlines, when you describe what you just described, sounds like they're just like, hey, we want to, we don't want to put a central line in and we want something that's going to be in there for several days. You know, midline sounds like a good option in that context. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Maybe we learn how to do that. All right, I didn't feel so silly asking that. No, no, that. I think that's, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that uh, emerges. Editor's commentary. 
In this very well done large multicenter observational study, the authors report a two times higher complication rate with picks compared with midlines after adjusting for relevant variables, including dwell time. Until someone does an RCT, this is the best evidence we have comparing the two against each other and suggests that pick lines should be used more judiciously when possible. Quick take. Abstract number 16, and this is a quick take. It's clinical predictors of testicular torsion in patients with acute scrotum. A cross-sectional study. It's by Sazgar et al., and it's in the Archives of Academic Emergency Medicine. So I wish this were a better study, you know. The point here is to describe clinical features associated with the acute scrotum that might point the provider towards or away from testicular torsion, which I think is, you know, very relevant clinical question. The authors here are from a single center in Iran, and they conduct a study of all their cases of acute scrotum over a five-year study period. The methods are not good. They're not well described, but they end up stating that they only included patients in whom the primary diagnosis, apparently in the ED, was torsion and who underwent surgical exploration. So that's not all the people with, you know, a swollen or painful testicle. I have no idea why they do not give clinical characteristics of all the patients who presented with testicular pain because they tell us, they're like, this is the number that presented with testicular pain, but then just don't tell us anything about them. Oh, I thought maybe they just were using like a surgery registry to no. identify them no. or something like no, that. No, they're like, there's 400 patients that showed up with acute testicular pain and here are the 70 that we're going to talk about. Maybe this is like the third time we've had this problem in this month. They're making me mad. Anyway, you know, further, this study was done at an adult hospital that did not have a child ward. So there were basically no kids in this study, which is kind of odd for a disease process that, you know, generally speaking, I think of as peak incidents around, you know, 13 years old or something like that. They end up with 81 patients, mean age 20. 70 of them had testicular torsion, and 11 of them had some other diagnosis upon surgical exploration. I really think there's only a couple of things that we can learn from this paper. First, the mean age of the 70 patients with torsion was 18. Obviously, this is because the kids, the actual pediatric cases, went to another hospital to get this dealt with. But it's worth noting that you can still get torsion into early adulthood, not something I think we don't know, but just to remember that that does happen. 84% of the torsion cases described the pain as sudden onset. That part's not what I want to emphasize. I just kind of wanted to flip it around and say, you know, 16% of them actually reported as gradual onset. So again, something to consider. 80% of the torsion cases had an absent cremasteric reflex. So that means that 20% had a normal cremasteric reflex, which I found interesting because I was, I think in my mind, I thought that cremasteric reflex was actually more sensitive or the absence of a cremasteric reflex was more sensitive than that, but it's only, you know, 80% sensitive. So there's that. And then of the people who did not have testicular torsion, a third of them had an absent cremasteric reflex. So it suggests that cremasteric reflex is neither as sensitive as I had hoped, and it's certainly not specific either. Finally, maybe most interestingly, I don't know, 94% of the confirmed testicular torsion cases, so there's like one or two exceptions, involve the left testicle. So right testicular torsion was extremely rare in this. And, you know, at some level, I knew there was some kind of sightedness to torsion. And if I had to guess, since I know that, you know, generally speaking, the left testicle hangs lower and that sort of apparatus is longer, I would have guessed that it's more than the right. 
but 94 versus 6%, that's kind of interesting. So again, I didn't know that the testicular torsion was usually a lefty kind of thing, but you know, that's all that we can take from this. The other problems are enormous with this is single center, et cetera. But I think we've highlighted what can be taken from this. Editor's commentary. This is a methodologically awkward study making clinical comparison between those patients with acute scrotum who had proven testicular torsion and those who did not difficult. However, the findings that a cremasteric reflex was present 20% of the time in torsion cases and that torsion appears to dominantly affect the left testicle may be helpful to clinicians. Abstract number 17. Ultrasonographic IVC measurement is more sensitive than vital sign abnormalities for identifying moderate and severe hemorrhage, despite clemency et al. from the Journal of Emergency Medicine. So in patients with active hemorrhage, being able to predict early as you're going down the road of resuscitation, who might have hemorrhagic shock definitely has real value. Currently, our best predictors are vital sign abnormalities, heart rate, blood pressure. I think Britain covered a paper a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, I'm sorry, looking at pulse pressure and the value of pulse pressure. But all of these have poor reliability for lots of different reasons. You know, a big one being everybody just sort of compensates differently in the face of blood loss. Like young people can maintain that blood pressure and heart rate until they're ready to tank, you know, things like that. So as ultrasound has become a routine part of trauma resuscitation in the form of the FAST exam and the EFAST, the authors here are basically saying, hey, can we just take that probe, flip it up one more place, right, take an IVC measurement and see if that could help us predict who is going to progress to hemorrhagic shock or who is in hemorrhagic shock already, and it's just not apparent on the vital signs. So They cite some prior work saying that serial measurements of the IVC size does change with hypovolemia. It gets smaller as the patient gets more hypovolemic, but point out that its utility without sort of a pre-measurement or a baseline is a little bit less clear. So the objectives of this study were to establish cut points in ultrasound IVC diameter to identify hemorrhagic shock and test their hypothesis that these cut points will identify central hypovolemia earlier than our more traditional established vital signs. So these were not real patients. These were healthy volunteers. That gave them hemorrhagic (laughs) shock. So these are 22-year-old, young, healthy, 14 of them, people who volunteered. I'm just sort of picturing back to like, you know, when I was an undergrad, oh, yeah. and there was those little signs up. With the little tag. The li- take the t- Want to make drifting. 50 bucks? <laughs> yeah. That's sort of, because they're all 22. I just picture like 14 friends like <laughs> rolling in this place. So this is a simulated hypovolemia condition created by putting these people in a lower body negative pressure model with a vacuum. It's an airtight chamber where basically they could adjust the strength of this vacuum, and they're saying, like, sort of pull all their blood volume, like, down into their pelvis and legs. So creating a central hypovolemia. Mike looks at me <laughs> like I'm making one, this up. We need the video, video EMA, <laughs> this is, to see what my face looks like right now. Yeah, this, so that's what they did here, right? So they didn't make them, they didn't bloodlet them. They did not bloodlet. they blood did let. suck all the blood out of they didn't bloodlet them externally. They bloodlet them intern. I don't know how uncomfortable that is for your legs and things like that. To make you actually hypovolemic doesn't sound very happy. 
So I hope they got more than 50 bucks. Did they say? <laughs> Didn't say how they recruited these people. So it's kind of a weird model. Let me just jump to the results then. Basically, they said that vital signs were not useful at all. Okay, so in the moderate blood loss condition, when the vacuum had sucked out what they said was a moderate <laughs> amount of blood, only one patient out of the 14 had an elevation in heart rate. Every other vital sign was completely normal among everybody else. And in the severe blood loss condition, that same patient still had tachycardia. He was the only one. And two of them had an abnormal blood pressure. And that's it. Otherwise, even in severe hemorrhage condition, all the vital signs were stone cold normal. So, Mike's banging his head <laughs> on the microphone. <laughs> now, just, the IVC diameter did get smaller in the severe condition, and they really tried to get fancy with these 14 people here. They generated rock curves sure. to try to figure out what's the optimal cut point. But if you look at the abstract, it just says if it, the diameter is less than 0.8 centimeters, that has some value. That seems to be the best cut point. Okay, that's what it says in the abstract. But when you look at the actual results, they're incredibly confusing because it's like in one condition, the IVC max of 0.8 was useful. In a different condition, an IVC min of 0.3 was most useful. And it seemed to vary by long axis and short axis. So there was a lot of things here for only 14 patients. Yeah. And, you know, these are all healthy males. The scans were done by a single ultrasound trained doc. We have no idea how long the scans took. You know, maybe it takes a really long time to measure this thing. No clue how technically difficult they would be in a real trauma case where the patient's very sick in front of you or how valid their model is, yeah. which is the big one. Now, they cited some papers saying this is a really well-validated model, but the fact that they had severe hemorrhage and everybody looked totally fine <laughs> by like, bile sign makes me question. But the concept of measuring the IVC in kind of a sick trauma patient, that intrigues me. But I'm not going to do it based on this paper. I'm not ready for prime time. Edit this commentary. In this lab-based study on healthy adults, the authors found vital signs to be essentially useless and ultrasound diameter to be pretty good in predicting massive blood loss. Their findings should be considered hypothesis generating at best. I think it's kind of a cool idea, and maybe we'll see more on it soon. Abstract number 18. Trichomonas infection rates in males presenting to the emergency department for sexually transmitted infections. This is by Torito et al., and this is in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Trichomonas vaginalis is thought to be one of, if not the most common sexually transmitted infection in the United States. The incidence exceeds 10 to 15% in high-risk female cohorts. Male cohorts, on the other hand, are markedly less studied and the incident rates are much lower. Wet mounts are totally unreliable for urethral specimens. And genital culture, which is the gold, or had been the gold standard, is super insensitive. It's thought, at least. More recently, nucleic acid amplification tests, or NAT tests, have emerged that directly test for trichomonas genetic material and are much more sensitive. The authors here describe the prevalence of trichomonas in a cohort of male patients who were tested for STIs in two emergency departments in Buffalo, New York, over a four-year study period after this NAT test became available. They then go on to describe the positivity rate, and the symptoms of those 
that were NAT positive or trick positive, I suppose I should say, compared to those who were trick negative. The study is a chart review with, you know, sort of marginal methods. They identified just over 2,000 male patients who had a NAT test for trichomonas vaginalis, and the overall incidence in this cohort of men was 95 positives out of that 2,100, so 4.4%, which I think for me was a surprisingly high number considering we don't really, I mean, I shouldn't say we don't really think, I don't really think of trichomonas in men very frequently. Compared with those men who tested trick negative, the patients who tested positive for trichomonas were more likely to complain of penile discharge, specifically clear penile discharge, though the majority of patients who tested positive for trick did not have that. Patients with trick were much less likely to have frank testicular pain or swelling. Honestly, I'm not sure what to make of this study. The main point, I guess, is that trick was present in a fairly high proportion of men tested. The main problem with the study is that only patients who were tested for trichomonas were included, not all patients presenting for any STI concerns. So we don't know if there was something specific that tipped the providers off to trick, like saying, hey, my girlfriend or my partner or whatever just tested positive for trick. I need to be tested for that. If that's the case, then the estimated prevalence of trick is much higher than it would be if you were talking about all comers with STI concern. Alternatively, it may well be that they sort of added trichomonas to their sort of routine checklist. We do GC, chlamydia, trick, HIV, syphilis, whatever, and we just do it all, in which case this reflects a more you know, sort of balanced view of what the incidence of trichomonas might be in a male population. They just don't describe that at all. Because that, that, that's just such a critical thing to understand, right? Because basically you're asking the difference between when I'm suspecting trick, yeah. I'm right 5% of the time, which is also kind of low, you know, right. if that's if they're doing it sort of at their discretion. Or if I'm not suspecting it at all, it's surprised me at 5%. Yeah, so that exactly. context is so critical there. Exactly. You know, I think that overall, I think that this tends to show that trick is a bigger player in male STI than most of us probably thought. I think, you know, I can't, honestly, I just, I don't even remember the last time I sent trichomonas, you know, test for Yeah, well, that's a, a good point. So it's out there, it exists. Now in men, it doesn't tend to cause problems. That's the issue, right? It tends to maybe some penile discharge, but it doesn't result in swollen testicles and, you know, epididymal orchitis. It just doesn't do that. So, you know, what we're doing then by not testing for it is allowing men to transmit it to women who then can develop PID or it's associated with a higher risk of PID and stuff like that. So I think it's just telling us this is a bigger player than we thought. Now we have these NAT tests that are I think very commonplace in emergency department labs. So think about adding trick onto your GC chlamydia when you have somebody presenting with, you know, STI concern. Editor's commentary. The rollout of NAT testing for trichomonas was associated with identifying a 4.4 positivity rate among men tested. This estimate may be biased upward, but does suggest that trichomonas is a significant pathogen in male STI and may warrant a more aggressive diagnostic approach. Abstract number 19. Diagnosis and Management of Acute Left-Sided Colonic Diverticulitis, a Clinical Guideline from the American College of Physicians, and this is by Kasim et al. in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So we've covered several papers on the program recently about the management of acute diverticulitis, and although existing randomized controlled trials on the topic have relatively strict inclusion and exclusion criteria about who could potentially be managed without antibiotics, 
they all tend to suggest that, generally speaking, this condition can be managed without antibiotics, which really flies in the face of like our traditional teaching and dogma and the way we approach this. The American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons support this approach, and the most recent World Society of Emergency Surgery guidelines updated in 2020 recommend no antibiotics or admission. But, you know, we've sort of said, okay, well, that's like the surgery side of things, but, you know, we have to have everybody get on board before this starts to become real. So, in January 2022, the American College of Physicians published their guidelines on the topic, and they are based on the best available evidence of benefits of harms, patient values and preferences, and consideration of cost. They go into a lot of detail talking about how the guidelines were developed and who was on the committee. The committee actually consisted of clinicians and non-clinical public members who sort of could weigh in on the patient side of things and what they thought. And after creation, the guideline was sent to their ACP regents and governors for review. And these are physicians who represent internal medicine and subspecialty members at the national and international levels. They go through a lot of effort to say how we made our recommendations. Yeah. Who are and, the stakeholders here? That were included? And there are three, and I'll just sort of go through all three. I'll read them verbatim. Recommendation one, ACP suggests that clinicians use abdominal CT imaging when there is diagnostic uncertainty in a patient with suspected acute left-sided colonic diverticulitis. And this is a conditional recommendation on low certainty evidence. The diagnostic uncertainty, so what they mean by that, will vary on the basis of an individual clinician's experience and may particularly occur for patients without a history of diverticulitis or those with signs of an alternative diagnosis. And basically, they say clinicians should err on the side of imaging in patients with predictors of progression to complicated diverticulitis, and they give a list of things that might help predict that, and that includes a symptom duration before a clinical presentation of longer than five days, signs of perforation on your physical exam, bleeding, obstruction, or an abscess like that you may see on, you know, if you feel like there's something bad Mass going on in, in the there. belly. Yeah. So that's their first recommendation. Recommendation two, ACP suggests that clinicians manage most patients with uncomplicated left-sided colonic diverticulitis in an outpatient setting. All these recommendations, are, they say, are conditional for now on sort of low certainty evidence. This recommendation doesn't apply to patients with suspected complicated diverticulitis, recent antibiotic use, concomitant unstable comorbid conditions, immunosuppression, signs of sepsis, given that patients who had any of these things were excluded. They weren't included in any of the studies. So, you know, you just don't know. Uncomplicated diverticulitis, you're like, what is that exactly? It's localized inflammation. That's it. And complicated diverticulitis is like anything else. Inflammation with an abscess, a phlegmon, a fistula, some clinical signs of obstruction, bleeding, or evidence of perforation. So uncomplicated left-sided diverticulitis can be sent home. Recommendation three. They suggest that clinicians initially manage select patients with acute uncomplicated left-sided colonic diverticulitis without antibiotics. So they join the party on this one of those two big surgical organizations. This recommendation does not apply to patients with complicated diverticulitis, SIRS, immunosuppression, ongoing or recent antibiotic treatment. They say if you're going to manage somebody with no antibiotics, then that patient needs to have some sort of, you know, ability to come back. Right. If they get sick, somebody to sort of watch them and be with them to make sure that they're doing all right. And 
One thing they sort of, they do talk about, which is interesting, is they say that a non-antibiotic approach doesn't require a CT-confirmed diagnosis because most of the trials on Mm -hmm. this, they do a CT first. They say, yep, it's uncomplicated. Then we'll randomize you to one thing or the other. Here, that people have always been like, okay, wait, so then I should do a CT if I don't want to give antibiotics or I give antibiotics and don't do the CT. You know, that's kind of the traditional, like the mental hurdle you have to go through here. But here they're saying it's okay. If you examine them, you look at their vials, and they look pretty clear like it's uncomplicated to send them home with antibiotics. So, you know, are you going to start doing this on tomorrow's shift? I don't think so quite yet. But as more and more of these big organizations get on board with these recommendations, I think we're going to start changing the way we treat diverticulitis. Editor's commentary. In this clinical guideline published by the American College of Physicians, they recommend that with some caveats, we should move to a non-antibiotic management strategy for uncomplicated diverticulitis and that CT is not required for the diagnosis. Much of the world is already doing this, but we need to make sure our local relevant stakeholders, surgery, GI, hospitalist service have bought in before changing our individual practice. Abstract number 20, manual closed reduction of incarcerated hernia. Is it safe in the emergency department? This is in the Israeli Medical Association Journal. And this is another relatively small single-site study that I kind of like, even though the science presented is not that strong. So basically, you know, they start by talking about how hernias are a common presenting sign in the ED. And very often when the patient comes to the ED, they report that the hernia is out and will not go back in and there's considerable concern for incarceration. I feel like I deal with this like, I don't know, 10 times a shift, right? Now, most of the time, you lie the patient down, you push the hernia back in and it's totally reducible. And as soon as they stand up, it pops back out and they're like, see, it's out. You're like, that's not what we're... This is not the droid you're looking for, you know, so we send those guys home. Sometimes, although rarely, the thing looks awful, right? It's purple, it's super inflamed, all this kind of stuff. It has a big sign on it that says, stop messing with me, there's strangulated gut in there. But often the clinical situations in between, that is the hernia is definitely out and stuck out, but otherwise looks pretty normal. The tissue looks healthy. And if you could just get it back in, you could probably avoid a whole admission. You're not worried about strangulated gut and things like that. I have found that some emergency physicians are more aggressive than others at attempting to reduce these kinds of things. And one of the reasons, I think, is that emergency physicians may fear reducing otherwise injured bowel back into the abdomen. Surgeons, on the other hand, in my experience, seem almost universally willing to try to shove anything back in there no matter what it looks like, right? So they're very aggressive about that. So the question here is basically twofold. One, what's the chance of a successful manual reduction of an apparently incarcerated hernia, one that the ED physician says is incarcerated and I need to get a surgeon down here? And two, is that safe? Is it safe to reduce them? So to study this, the authors conducted a retrospective chart review of all the patients they could identify that presented with incarcerated hernia to the ED of a single hospital in Israel from 2012 to 2018. It was one of their big hospitals. By convention, the authors state that all these patients were initially treated by emergency physicians, and if the hernia was determined by the emergency physician to be incarcerated, the surgical team was called. And again, by conventional practice, all of the patients underwent a trial of manual reduction, unless there was concern for bowel strangulation. And very frustratingly, they don't describe at all like what they would consider, 
you know, concern for bowel strangulation. Though, I mean, I personally have an image in my head, but they just don't even describe that in any way. They also don't explain how often that was a concern so that they, you know, didn't attempt a manual reduction. The ones who failed manual reduction went on to surgery for reduction and repair. Outcomes were assessed via chart review. They identified 2,600 patients who presented with a complaint of hernia, of whom 548 were considered incarcerated and had surgical service consultation. The mean age was 62. And the mean duration of symptoms was nine hours, just to sort of think about that. Of the 548, 139, so 25%, underwent successful reduction by the surgical service. So a quarter. The other 400 were indeed very incarcerated and went to the OR, some of them emergently, but most of them like sort of the next day kind of deal. Of the 139 that were reduced, there was only one complication. It was a really weird case. It was a person that you know, got reduced and then they got admitted or observed at least for 24 hours. They underwent a PO challenge, all this kind of stuff, passed all of that, and then came back two days later with belly pain where they were discovered to have another incarcerated hernia in a different location. And they ended up getting an X-lap and they said, yeah, we had to resect a couple of feet of bowel that looked like it was probably from the original hernia site. So it was just a very strange case, but it was the only one that was like that. So, you know, basically 25% went back in, less than 1% of them had a complication. Those are the the key top line take-home points. There was one other thing that was fairly noteworthy for me, which was this table one that showed the percent of hernias that were successfully reduced by the location of the hernia. And for what it's worth, 40% of the apparently incarcerated inguinal hernias were able to be manually reduced. And that contrasts very sharply with only 10% of those that were post-op ventral hernias that could be reduced. When those things are stuck out, it was a problem. And then femoral hernias, which we don't see too often. And they weren't a high proportion in this case, but only 4% of them were able to be manually reduced. Did they talk about at all in this thing at like the sort of the CT scanning use in these patients? Like if they were calling them, you know, incarcerated based on a clinical exam or based on a CT where there's like, oh, there's some stranding that looks like it's incarcerated. Don't push on it. You know, that kind of a thing. They didn't, they didn't come. They said that anything that was incarcerated, they pushed on. Right, but I'm but saying there's a CT strangulation, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, they didn't comment on that. They did comment on a number of cases where it was evident that they had gotten a CT before because they're like, this person has small bowel obstruction, you know, and they manually reduced them even when they had a small bowel obstruction and things like that. But yeah, there's not enough in here to really understand this. There's a ton of limitations. You know, again, the main one was that there was no standardized approach to the emergency physician assessment of incarceration. Again, some emergency physicians may have a very low threshold to say, you know, I don't want to mess with this. I'll just call my buddy. He'll come down and do it or she'll come down and do it. And that'll be that. There was no standardized assessment of what strangulation or signs of strangulation might have meant or how often that happened. And there was no standardization of the approach to the reduction. They said sometimes they got medicine, sometimes they didn't, but none of that's quantified in any kind of way. So you can't really use this as science, but I still like it that it gives us some notion that, you know, when you have one of these ones that seems a little manually incarcerated, that, you know, giving it a good trial of reduction is probably reasonable. Maybe a quarter of them go away and it seems safe, even though there are some caveats around that. Editor's commentary. This single site study of patients with apparently incarcerated abdominal wall hernias showed that surgical consulting team was able to manually reduce 25% of them at the bedside 
with extremely rare complications. These results are far from definitive, but suggest a more aggressive manual reduction attempt may be warranted. Note that the chance of successful reduction is highest for inguinal hernias, but very low for incisional ventral hernias or femoral hernias. Abstract number 21, improving the quality of clinical care of children with DKA in general EDs following a collaborative improvement program with an academic medical center. And this is by El Sadi et al. from the Journal of Pediatrics. Adherence to pediatric DKA guidelines has been shown to improve outcomes. And the authors of this paper suggest that kids seen in general EDs may be less likely to receive guideline concordant care than those seen in a pediatric ED for the simple reason that sick kids make up a much smaller portion of the patients that you'd see on any given shift if you're working at a general ED. This paper looks at adherence to the International Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Diabetes guidelines before and after a multifaceted intervention was delivered, including simulation at a bunch of these different sites, post-simulation debriefing, targeted assessment reports, distribution of DKA best practices, having a pediatric DKA module, and scheduled check-in visits with all these sites to see how things are going after a collaboration was formed between an academic medical center that has a pediatric ED and several community general EDs. With all that effort, I hope it made a difference. Exactly right. So the appropriateness of care was measured by adherence with the pediatric nine-item DKA checklist. And I'm just going to list these things out because if nothing else from this paper, it can be a little bit of a refresher about what kinds of things we're supposed to be doing in pediatric DKA. The nine items in their checklist were appropriate fluid concentration used, appropriate fluid rate used, insulin bolus not given, we're not supposed to give insulin boluses, correct insulin drip rate used, which is 0.05 to 0.1 units per kilo per hour, sodium bicarb boluses not given, excessive fluid boluses not given, hourly glucose checked. Uh, They have one that just says GCS, which I think just means assess the patient's sort of mental status at relatively frequent intervals, and laboratory values checked. So if you send something, check the results. It's not a lot of patients here. They report on 38 patients in the pre-period and 47 in the pre-period, and the clinical characteristics are similar between the two. Overall adherence with this, you know, the checklist, the nine items rose from 77.8% to 88.9%. So adherence went up a bit, but this was largely driven by a single item. Hourly glucose checks rose from about 35% adherence to 96% adherence. So that was it. That was the big change. They also looked at clinical outcomes, a lot of them, including PICU length of stay, time on the insulin drip, cerebral edema. Well, there was no change in PICU length of stay or time on drip. There was a little bit of a difference in cerebral edema, which is, you know, a little bit strange. There were two in the pre-period and four in the post-period. Which, it's worse. Which is, yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit worse. Not, but, but they define cerebral edema as a little bit weird too. They basically said if they ever got hypertonic saline in any amount or mannitol, we're going to say that kid had cerebral sure. edema. You know, so, ah, you know, I don't know what to make of that really. But like Mike said before, this is a massive effort. And I didn't even go into all the details of it. They also named a pediatric champion at every one of these. Yeah. They named names? They named a champion. Every place had a champion. These follow-up interventions. So it did 
at the end of the day, increase guideline adherence, but it's impossible to know with this massive effort yeah. which one of these things did anything. It might but, have been just as simple as like having a nursing checklist change where they're right. like, here's our new checklist. Fall, do these things. Well, you it know, sounds like it's, it's all done. driven by the glucose. So it's like instead of doing the, all of this hullabaloo, you'd be better off just sort of like going on insulin drip, check glucose Q1 hour and change your nursing form so it has to be done or something like that. And then you yeah, I get, get I get the motivation. The I get the course, motivation yeah. because, you know, DKA is one of the few things in emergency medicine where checklist has been shown to make mm -hmm. a difference. Following a checklist. But, you know, one of my take homes from this is like in the introduction, they're sort of like, you know, these general EDs need help doing all this stuff. Did pretty good, actually. Yeah, the only <laughs> like, thing they didn't do was the the glucose every hour, which of course is important to do or, or yeah. document it. Interestingly, you know, they talk about that the glucose every hour that that was the thing that changed, but they don't talk about hypoglycemic events in right. these kids because maybe maybe then that would have made a clinical difference. But that's one of the few clinical outcomes I didn't see in the paper. Anyway, having a DKA checklist is a good idea. I'll leave it at that. Editor's commentary. The authors of this paper made a massive effort to improve the quality of pediatric DKA care in affiliated general EDs, and although they did increase checklist compliance, there were no changes in clinical outcomes. That being said, using a checklist for DKA management has been shown to have real value. So you should know what the critical components of care are for DKA patients, and if your ED doesn't have a checklist, you should create one. House of Medicine. Abstract number 22, factors associated with opioid overdose after an initial opioid prescription. This is by Scott Weiner et al. And this is in JAMA Network Open. And this is definitely not least for last, right? This is a whopper of a study. And the key background pieces are that, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the opioid epidemic continues to be a major public health crisis. Actually got worse during COVID. Over the years, we've seen quite a few papers looking at prescription and patient factors associated with long-term opioid use, but relatively fewer studies associating those factors with what we really care about, overdose. Okay, Some are associated with death, but overdose and death, sort of the combined, has not very well been described. And this is mostly because the data doesn't exist in a single longitudinal data set, but tends to be separated between sort of like your vital health statistics, the CDC death data, and the prescription data that lives somewhere else and is unlinkable across the two, and then insurer data that doesn't correlate with either one of those two, PDMP data, hospital data, etc. The authors of this study constructed the Oregon Comprehensive Opioid Registry, which basically incorporates all of these data sets into one analytic data set that can finally allow researchers to look at these important associations. So that's the whopper part. Doing that sound like it was a big effort. They identified a cohort of opioid-naive patients, 18 to 100 years old, who had at least one opioid prescription in 2015. That was sort of the index time, and that was based on the PDMP data that filtered in. Again, this was Oregon only. The opioid naivete was considered to be no scripts, and no opioid-related ED visit or hospitalization in the year before the index prescription. Could have had it five years ago, that doesn't matter. Patients were followed through 2018 for the outcomes, which were, you know, overdose and or death. Again, the primary outcome was overdose event resulting in either a hospitalization, an ED visit, or death. 
the key predictors of overdose event were the prescription patterns, so the, the kinds of drugs they got during those initial visits, and demographic and clinical characteristics of the patients. Unfortunately, uninsured patients are not captured in this analysis. There's always something missing when you start to merge all these data sets together. Ultimately, they identified 230,000 patients who began a new opioid prescription and who had previously been opioid naive, according to their definition, in 2015. Most patients were prescribed hydrocodone, 60%, followed by oxycodone, 26%, and about 10% received tramadol. Most prescriptions were for a seven-day supply or less, and most people just had one or two prescriptions, like over 80%. But a small fraction of patients had multiple prescriptions from multiple pharmacies and or had benzodiazepine co-prescribing occur during that first several months while they're getting you know, on the opioids. Overall, the overdose rate, both fatal and non-fatal, was about 120 events per 100,000 patient years, but it varied a lot according to patient and prescribing factors. On multivariate analysis, and this is you know, sort of the key take-homes, older individuals were at highest risk. So that is, the adjusted hazard ratio for an overdose was 3.22 for patients that were over 75 compared to the group of 35 to 44-year-olds, which I thought was, I don't know, just shocking to me. Younger people, 18 to 24-year-olds, had the next highest risk, which was 1.8. So young kids have a higher overdose risk, but it's those 75-year-olds that have really the highest overdose risk. Patients with a history of substance abuse have very high hazard ratios for an opioid overdose event a hazard ratio of almost three, and patients with multiple medical comorbidities also had substantially higher risk, a hazard risk of uh, 1.9. Men, black people, urban dwellers, and patients with depression had a little bit higher risk, roughly 25% higher risk, so hazard ratio of 1.25. In terms of the prescriptions, codeine and morphine had the lowest risk, with hydrocodone being slightly higher than codeine. Tramadol was the worst actor. And we saw a paper a couple of months ago about that. Tramadol was associated with a hazard ratio of 2.8 after adjustment for all these other things. So it's a really high risk for subsequent opioid overdose. Co-prescribing with benzodiazepines was the next most dangerous prescription event that was associated with a subsequent opioid overdose with uh, an adjusted hazard ratio of 2. Other things such as multiple prescribers, multiple pharmacies were also more likely to be associated with the overdose. And they don't go into it, but I think that's you know, supposed to highlight that looking at the, the PDMP database to see if the patient's experiencing multiple prescriptions and multiple providers is something maybe we should do because it is associated with that. And if you're seeing a patient like that, you might be able to counsel them. The chief limitations of this paper are you know, sort of twofold. One is that all the data comes from Oregon, which may or may not be representative of other parts of the country where you know most of us practice. And two, prescribing has changed a lot over this study period, right? The study period started in 2015, ended in 2018. And you know, really, opioid prescribing has gone down quite substantially in the in the United States. Other non-prescribed opioids have taken their place, the fentanyl, you know, the illegal fentanyls and, and synthetics that are out there in the community. And obviously this data probably would be, you know, sort of somewhat different in this new sort of slightly more modern context. Nonetheless, 
This represents a big effort to cobble together a comprehensive view of risk factors for opioid overdose in a broad swath of patients who were previously naive prior to their initial prescription. And I give kudos to the authors for taking on this project. It gives us some good quantitative data. Editor's commentary. This very large administrative data analysis shows that among opioid-naive patients, the risk for opioid overdose is highest among patients over 75 years of age, those with a history of substance abuse, and those with multiple medical comorbidities. Further prescription features that are associated with increased risk are the use of tramadol, benzodiazepine co-prescription, and multiple provider and pharmacy use. Welcome, EMA listeners. I'm Jess Monis, and here with Jenny Beck Esme. It's May again, and I have some weird sense of deja vu. Jenny, I feel like I was just introducing May EMA, but that was one year ago. I can't explain it. Time has gone all timey wimey since COVID hit. Like somehow it's magically going super fast and super slow at the same time. Right. I, I don't yes. I don't understand. How is that possible? I don't know. I don't know. It's like my weeks are long, but my months are short. Yes. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I totally get it. I'm the same way with you. And some things that happened in 2020 feel like they were yesterday, and then other things feel like they were a decade ago. And we, you know, I don't know. It's wild. Totally. So, okay, I still love May. It's my birthday and anniversary mm-hmm. month. Mm-hmm. Yay! You know, I feel like it's been a kind of a little rough year, so I'm hoping my husband steps it up a bit <laughs> this year. So I'm just, I'm putting it out there, but if any of you guys know him, just do me a solid and drop him a hint. <laughs> <laughs> okay, noted. Let's do that. Let's all yeah. get Jess the best May ever. She earned it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> totally joking. Not joking. Not joking at all. Not joking. All right. Well, Jenny, how are you? I'm doing fine. I mean, I love May too. It's the beginning of springtime, you know, get to get outside and enjoy the weather. It's going to be great. I'm very, I am, you know, cautiously optimistic for how the spring is going to go. Considering, you know, like the world is on fire right now, like legit, it's like, everything is a disaster globally right now. So maybe, you know, May, June, July, August are going to be fabulous. Hoping, hoping. Fingers crossed. Exactly. All right. You ready to kick this off? Ready. Okay. All right. Paper number one, early remdesivir to prevent progression to severe COVID-19 in outpatients. This is a New England Journal of Medicine study that looked at rates of hospitalization in unvaccinated, higher-risk COVID-positive outpatients. It was a double-blind trial where patients were randomized to receive three daily infusions of remdesivir or placebo within seven days of symptom onset. Hospitalizations were 0.7 in the remdesivir group and 5.3 with placebo. There were no deaths to 28 days, and the difference in adverse events was not impressive. The authors conclude that a three-day course of remdesivir resulted in less hospitalizations, which on the surface sounds promising. Mike points out that the number needed to treat is in the 20s, and this study was done pre-Omicron, which has lower hospitalization rates to begin with, so is it really worth it? Regardless, remdesivir is FDA-approved, and now comes in an oral form. So we will be seeing this, and patients will be asking for it, so we need to know why. Paper number two. 
Risk for recurrent venous thromboembolism in patients with subsegmental pulmonary embolism managed without anticoagulation. Small subsegmental pulmonary embolisms may not be super clinically significant, and yet when we find them, patients end up on anticoagulation. This study asks, what happens if we just don't? Patients were enrolled if they had a subsegmental PE and negative bilateral venous duplex ultrasounds of the lower extremities. They excluded patients who had active cancer, a known thrombophilia, who were hospitalized prior to enrollment, or had an oxygen requirement. And their primary outcome was recurrent VTE at 90 days, either a DVT or a PE. And then secondary outcomes included death due to the PE or bleeding events. They expected a rate of recurrent VTE of around 1% in this population based on previous retrospective studies. What they found, however, was a rate closer to 3%, a rate that probably would make most of us uncomfortable. They did find lower rates in those patients under 65 and much higher rates in those over 65, so there may be some subgroups in which we can forego anticoagulation. But as of right now, this paper suggests that the rate is higher than we would like without AC, so we should probably still be giving it. Okay, that's fine. Continue for now. Yeah, continue for now. Paper number three, Efficacy of Topical Tranexamic Acid in Epistaxis, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Continuing with my sensation of deja vu, we reviewed the NOPAC trial exactly one year ago. As a reminder, it was the largest and most well-conducted study to date looking at TXA and epistaxis, and it was a negative study. This meta-analysis found that patients treated with TXA were three and a half times more likely to have stopped bleeding at the first assessment and less likely to bounce back. It should be noted that the NOPAC trial was not included in this paper. The reason? Because it looked at the need for nasal packing and not bleeding cessation. Additionally, the eight papers reviewed were all over the place in terms of what TXA was compared to and what was done before giving it. So what do we do with this information? For most of us, we'll do what we did before. This paper is not going to change that. Agreed. Isn't it so funny how some kind of really minor seeming things like TXA for nosebleeds or abscesses, packing, not packing, right. you know, like all of these like really kind of small things get studied over and over and over again. I mean, it's important. It's important that we know what to do with them, but it's just, we, we talk about them a lot. Oh, totally. I feel like I have reviewed TXA for like everything <laughs> oh, for that so ails many you over too. and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. It's like, this one's great. This one's not so great. This one's great. This one's not so great. <laughs> Paper number four, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children by COVID-19 vaccination status of adolescents in France. These authors look at how the vaccination status affected the incidence of MIS-C in the fourth COVID wave in France. In their four-month study period, they identified around 100 MIS-C cases. Now, while the title says children, I mean, and also adolescents, this is actually looking mostly at adolescents, just because of when France dropped their COVID eligibility age down. But in this cohort, they found the hazard ratio of developing MIS-C was 0.05, or 1 20th, for adolescents receiving at least one dose of COVID vaccine compared to those who were unvaccinated. So the vaccine took the small risk of Miss C in adolescents and made it even smaller. More data in the pro-vaccine camp. Bring it on. Can we get another booster, please? All right. I have to say, this study, I mean, made me feel really good, right? Yes. It, it made me feel good. It made me feel good about vaccinating my six-year-old. 
And, you know, it just makes me like, just want so much more to vaccinate my two and a half year old. You know, it's like, that's all yes. I want. And my seventh month old. Can we, can we please do all of them? Can we get a vaccine, people? All right. Paper number five. Utilization of anti-factor 10A levels to guide reversal of oral factor 10A inhibitors in the emergency department. This is a retrospective case series looking at the role of anti-10A levels in patients on DOACs presenting with acute bleeds. The median time from lab collection to results was 45 minutes, which is not too bad. At this stage, we can't correlate a level to which one you would or would not reverse a patient, but we can say that if the anti-10A level is zero, they are not taking their anticoagulant, and you can hold off on that debate for now. Okay, well, I mean, that makes sense. If it's zero, they're not taking it. All right, if it's zero, then it's a a moot point, yeah. Paper number six, higher intensity of 72-hour non-invasive cardiac test referral does not improve short-term outcomes among emergency department patients with chest pain. Do you want to hear the rest of it, or should we stop with the title? (laughs) It's pretty good. Here we go. When discharging chest pain patients, we're often referring them for stress testing within three days. But is this helping? Authors here looked at all chest pain patients in the Kaiser system of Northern California over several years, and they divided them up into three groups. Those who were seen by low-rate stress test referral providers, those seen by medium, and those seen by high-rate referral providers. They then looked at the incident of MACE, or MACE-CR, which is actually just MACE, the major adverse cardiovascular events, but removes the PCIs and the cabbages. And they wanted to compare these between groups. They actually found the rate of MACE full MACE within 60 days was higher in the high referral group, but this was driven by revascularization procedures, which I guess makes sense, right? They go and get their stress test, they find something, they go to the cath lab. So they're going to have a higher number of cath procedures. Okay. When you remove those and look at the MACE CR, so you're really looking at MIs, CHF exacerbations, the incidence of MACE was essentially the same between the groups. Now, As Mike points out, this is observational data from a very specific cohort of patients who likely have really good primary care follow-up and all of that. So these findings probably can't be widely generalized. But this is consistent with some other data on this topic. Over the last several years, good clinical decision instruments and pathways have been developed for managing chest pain, and these can be reviewed in the October 2020 MRAP cardiology corner. But Maybe these will be adjusted in the near future even further if more studies are showing similar results to this. Right. Because, you know, as I always say, if you go fishing, you will find fish. Exactly. Right? And then you need to do something about that. So, Mm -hmm. All right. Paper number seven. Effective open-label placebo on children and adolescents with functional abdominal pain or irritable bowel syndrome, a randomized clinical trial. It has been a long-held belief that for a placebo to work, the patient has to believe they are getting a real medication, but is this true? This paper starts by mentioning adult data that has demonstrated some benefit with open-label placebos and seeks to assess this with kids. They took children with functional abdominal pain and randomized them to either a placebo or nothing and then crossed them over. The treatment was described as a sugar pill without any medication in it, but they were told that adults with similar conditions had some benefit with this treatment. Not surprisingly, the kids felt like it helped them too. Mean pain scores were lower with placebo, and they needed less rescue medication. Kids tend to believe what you tell them. A Band-Aid makes my kid feel better when he bumps his knee, so I'm not surprised about the results of this study. 
You know, neither am I. And honestly, I'm not even surprised about it in adults. I, for one, will take some cough medicine every now and then if I have a terrible hacking cough. Do I know that that is probably purely placebo? Yeah, yeah, I do. I'm a doctor, but I'll still do it. And it seems like it makes me feel better. I don't know. You know what? And uh, kids, think about this, right? It's like kids get hurt and you're like, oh, you want mommy kiss it? You know, or like- Yes, of course. Right, my kid has boo-boo penguin, you know, like it's like this little (laughs) mini ice pack. And yeah, like you, you tell put them it on, it's going to make them feel better. They don't care what it is. Right. It's like they fall and they're like, I need boo-boo penguin. And then they yeah. put it on for two seconds and they're fine. So. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. But, you know, it's good to know. Paper number eight, effectiveness of phosphomycin for the treatment of multidrug-resistant E. coli, bacteremic urinary tract infections, a randomized clinical trial. This is an open-label study looking at the utility of IV phosphomycin for the treatment of multidrug-resistant E. coli bacteremia specifically that was caused by UTI, when they compared it to a comparator antibiotic, which was either ceftriaxone or miropenem if it was resistant. They found that phosphomycin had a similar rate of both microbiologic and clinical cure, but they had to discontinue therapy in 10% of the 140-some in the study because of adverse events, which were primarily worsening heart failure, which is a known complication of phosphomycin treatment. Because of this, the authors concluded that phosphomycin was not non-inferior. So maybe it is useful in select patients without a high risk of heart failure, but according to this study, it's probably not our slam-dunk IV medication. Right. I don't even know if it's available IV in the U.S. You know, I thought the same thing because I've only ever really used this as the oral single-dose treatment, you know, where it's like a one-and-done for a pregnant woman or something. And I really like it for that indication, but I've, I've never seen it IV. I think it's only available orally in the U.S., but, you know, don't quote me on that. I don't know. Maybe not. But either way, we're probably not going to be turning to it all the time anyway. Right. Paper number nine. Risk of delayed intracranial hemorrhage after initial negative CT in patients on DOACs with mild traumatic brain injury. Patient on a DOAC has a negative scan after a head injury. What now? Do you discharge them? Observe them? Rescan them in 24 hours? This topic comes up about once a year, and the conclusion remains the same. Delayed bleeds are rare. In this study, the rate was 1.5%, and none of those patients needed intervention. Some risk factors associated with delayed bleeds were loss of consciousness and post-traumatic amnesia. One problem worth noting is that about a quarter of the patients didn't get a follow-up study, so we don't know what happened to them. This is the largest paper on this topic, and it comes to the same conclusion as the one we reviewed in August of 2020. Delayed intracranial bleeds are uncommon, and routine repeat 24-hour CT scans are not warranted. That's good. That's reassuring. I like that we have even more kind of telling us that. Paper number 10, clinical failure in abscess treatment, the role of ultrasound, and incision and drainage. So speaking of those topics that we just talked about a lot. (laughs) One more time. This is a retrospective chart review study looking at the use of ultrasound in treatment of abscesses in the emergency department. Of the roughly 600 patients they looked at, three quarters had an IND and about half had an ultrasound and 15% had a treatment failure. Of those that had an ultrasound, the failure rate was 13% versus 17% in the group that did not have an ultrasound, and this was not statistically significant. Now, there are some problems with this study that Mike explains really well in detail, so pop back to the full segment for a listen. The big issue is something called survivorship bias. Because 
a good 25% of the patients who had abscesses were lost to follow-up, and therefore they were not enrolled in the study, which very likely skews the data. I don't think this is going to really inform my practice much at all. Yeah. We'll just wait for the next study to come yeah. out on we'll abscesses one, you and know, ultrasound. At least Fine. between now and a year from now, I'm sure we're going to cover another one. <laughs> exactly. Paper number 11. Impact of the utilization of 500 milliliter IV bags on crystalloid resuscitation volumes administered to trauma patients. Giving trauma patients tons of crystalloid is bad. It can cause a dilutional coagulopathy and worsen acidosis. The problem is, we love giving fluids. So how do we get clinicians to stop giving so much? The authors of this paper did a before and after study looking at the impact of switching from 1-liter crystalloid bags to 500cc ones. They found that after the change, patients received on average a half a liter less. Over 25% more patients received less than 2 liters, and there was also a modest mortality benefit. Was it solely the volume swap that caused this sweeping change? Probably not. There was likely some educational component that accompanied it, but honestly, I'd be willing to give it a shot. I mean, totally. It makes sense that if you just have to reassess the patient every 500 cc's to see if they need more, maybe it's the frequent reassessments that actually resulted in the, some of the benefit. I don't know. But it makes sense that if you, you know, just don't hang so much and they're going to get less, obviously. Right, because you're just like, well, I have to give them two. <laughs> like, right. Go ahead. Hang a bag. You know, hang two bags, whatever right. it is. But like, it, right. it, it kind of Do they really sense. need that? Maybe, maybe not. And if it's up, it's going to be given. Right, exactly. Yep. Paper number 12, emergent cardiac outcomes in patients with normal electrocardiograms in the emergency department. Now, Jess, I know that you love it when you think the AI are coming for us. Can I get a little of that Hal voice? Can I get a little? (laughs) We're coming. Let me hand you your EKG, Jenny. (laughs) Exactly. I knew you'd love it. This study looks at EKGs that the computer interprets as normal and wants to see how good that interpretation is. This could have a huge implication, right? Because if it's normal, then perhaps the tech doesn't have to interrupt us with it and get us to look at it in immediately. And instead, the ones that are read completely normal, they can just wait for us to see the patient or see the EKG at the same time or something like that. It's a retrospective review of EKGs read as normal rhythm, normal EKG. They were then interpreted by a cardiologist, and this was considered the gold standard. If the cardiologist disagreed, they wanted to know how. Was it a different rhythm, ST changes, T-wave changes, and the like? The cardiologist disagreed with the computer just under 20% of the time, and this was thought to be potentially clinically significant only 6% of the time. Reassuringly, in only 1% of cases was the cardiologist interpretation to be ischemia when the computer thought it was normal. They also did a chart review to look at patient outcomes. Did the patient need a PCI and so forth? Of the nearly 1,000 patients included, none went emergently to cath, and only six went for a cath during their hospitalization, none of which were found to have an acute thrombus. Now, we don't have 30 or 60-day outcomes here, so we can't really think about this in terms of MACE outcomes like we usually like in ACS-type studies. But this is pretty reassuring that when the computer thinks the EKG is normal, acute ACS is probably not going to be a major concern. Uh, You know, I mean, I like that, right? It's not common to get an EKG that is 100% completely normal. Right. So if it's like 100% completely normal, I mean, it makes sense to me that it's probably not a STEMI. Right. Exactly. Probably not a STEMI, probably not something very terrible. Right. Paper 13, 
Oral Ondansetron Administration in Children Seeking Emergency Department Care for Acute Gastroenteritis, a Patient-Level Propensity Matched Analysis. This was a secondary analysis of two multicenter trials in the U.S. and Canada looking at kids three months to four years old with acute gastroenteritis. After propensity matching, kids given ondansetron were half as likely to receive IV fluids at the initial visit. There was no difference in IV fluids within the first 72 hours or hospitalizations, and no difference in episodes of vomiting or diarrhea in the 24 hours post-discharge. Honestly, the downside is minimal. I would just give the kids a dose. Yeah, I agree. Paper number 14. Assessing the necessity for the joint above and below radiography approach for lower extremity long bone fractures in children. The classic teaching when you suspect an orthopedic injury is to image, of course, the joint or bone where you suspect the injury, but also to consider getting the joint above and below to look for a secondary injury you might miss. This study looks at how necessary that is in children. How often are we actually finding that second injury? They looked at just under 250 patients and found a concomitant ipsilateral injury in 3% of total cases. They divided the patients into low and high-risk groups based on mechanism, and among the low-risk group, they found a second injury in just 2% of patients versus 15% in the high-risk group. Now, they don't get into how often the second injury was suspected or just found incidentally. So it seems like that second injury in low-risk patients, like your twisted ankles and things, is super uncommon. But in general, I like to see my miss rates below 2%. This kind of hovers on the edge, like right at 2%. Routine imaging of above and below in this population may not be necessary. That said, it is pediatrics, right? And they aren't the best at localizing pain on exam in the first place. I might personally need a little bit more before I drop this practice. You know, it's interesting. What I want to know is, right, what is the miss rate when a clinician's suspicion is zero, right? Right. When like on clinical exam, there's nothing, right? And the clinician has no suspicion for fracture. What is the miss rate in that? That's what I'd like to see. Well, and we don't have data here on what happened in people who were imaged at the joint above and below when there was no initial injury found at all. You know, so what if you image the place you think the injury might be and that is negative? Can you stop there? Right. You know, or do you only have to get the joint above and below routinely if you find something? You know, this doesn't give us all the detailed situations in how you you might go about doing this ordering. You know, I don't personally treat a lot of kids and not a lot of orthopedic injuries in those kids. So, you know, I'm a little more liberal because I don't want to mess up their bones. (laughs) But, you know. But actually, you know, I mean, that's not a bad strategy, right? It's like if something hurts, you image it. And honestly, I have had patients with fractures and then I've talked to ortho and they're like, yeah, can you do me a favor? Just image this and this. And then you kind of add them on and they're admitting the patient anyway. So it's like whatever you want, you know. I do wonder if a lot of that kind of classic teaching that we get and we practice comes from our orthopedic consults because they almost always, adults, kids, whatever, if you find an injury, they want above and below. Right. But uh, you know what? It's probably okay to wait, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, based on this, it seems like it probably is. Certainly in the low-risk mechanisms. Obviously, if they were hit by a car or something, go crazy with your x-rays. But if they just kind of twisted their ankle while running on the soccer field, no different story. (laughs) Probably fine. Paper number 15. Safety and outcomes of midline catheters versus peripherally inserted central catheters for patients with short-term indications, a multi-center study. Considering midline catheters are just shorter picks, intuitively, it would seem like they should have less complications. 
And turns out that's true. The study looked at over 10,000 patients and found that ones with PICC lines were twice as likely to have a major complication when compared to those with midlines. They had a 5% lower rate of occlusion and a 1% lower rate of bloodstream infections. The average length of time the PICC was in was 14 days compared to 7 days for the midline, which may have something to do with the results, but if given a choice, I'd opt for the midline. I love when something that feels like it should be true is true. I love that. (laughs) Same with the studies that like, you know, substantiate what I've been doing all along. Yes. Oh, I love that. I mean, that's super. That's great. (laughs) Paper number 16, clinical predictors of testicular torsion in patients with acute scrotum, a cross-sectional study. This is a quick take and describes the features that should make us either more or less concerned for testicular torsion. The methods aren't well described, and it was done in an adult hospital, which doesn't help us for kids and teens who are probably more likely to get this disease process in the first place. But anyway, the vast majority of patients, 84%, describe their pain as sudden in onset. So that's pretty good to know. 20% of patients had a normal cremasteric reflex, so that's not a super helpful finding. And a whopping 94% of patients had torsion of their left testicle. For more on testicular torsion, check out the August 2018 segment, Testicular Torsion. You know, Mike and Sanjay talked about this, but 20%, you know, when talking about mm. the cremasteric reflex, I thought that that was much better. You it's know, I thought that's concerning to me. Yeah, I need to, I feel like I need to look into that a little bit more because I document that every time there's, you know, like concern for testicular torsion or, or not concern, I'll be like, cremasteric reflex intact, not concerned for testicular torsion, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a slam dunk. I think uh, it's one of those things that we probably still do and still include in our physical exam and our documentation. But I wouldn't hang your hat mm. on it. You know, not a hundred percent. Yep. Mm-hmm. Paper seventeen: Ultrasonographic inferior vena cava measurement is more sensitive than vital sign abnormalities for identifying moderate and severe hemorrhage. So let's start by saying that no participants were harmed in the making of this study. <laughs> so. <laughs> Hemorrhage was simulated in 14 healthy adult males by placing their inferior bodies in a negative pressure vacuum, which sequestered blood in their pelvis and legs. What? Yep. So this is is the equivalent to hemorrhage. I know. So, right? So they found that an IVC measurement cut point of 0.8 centimeters distinguished between no blood loss and moderate blood loss. They note that this was often evident before the participants had abnormal vital signs, and in fact, only one person was tachycardic when a moderate hemorrhage was induced. You guys can't see it, but I'm putting that in quotes there. Um, (laughs) And only three were abnormal when severe. I'm all for measuring the IVC, but the simulation method here seems a bit sketch, so the study is certainly not the one to convince me to do it. For a refresher on IVC measurement, check out the RUSH exam in the HD video section. Paper 18, trichomonas infection rates in males presenting to the emergency department for sexually transmitted infections. Trichomonas is actually a really common STI, and it's often considered in high-risk women, but traditional testing methods like wet mounts and genital cultures are not super useful in male specimens. But recently, a nucleic acid amplification test, or NAT, has entered the scene. These authors found an incidence of 4.4% in male patients tested for TRIC using the NAT. Now, unfortunately, they included only patients tested specifically for TRIC, not just all comers with STI concerns. So that likely inflates the incidence number. 
That being said, this may be a relatively common infection that we've been overlooking, so we might want to consider more routine testing in patients with STI concerns. Yeah, and I probably should not say this, but every time I see trichomonas, I had a friend in medical school who'd, who'd like call me trichomonas. Oh, no. <laughs> it's, like, it's like every time it's like trichomonas, I think like, I think of him being like, tricky Monas. Oh, no, no. I can never unthink that. Anytime I talk to you, <laughs> I can, I'm going to think I about trick. Good Lord. <laughs> oh, not a good association. All right, let's put that out. <laughs> Paper 19. Diagnosis and management of acute left-sided colonic diverticulitis, a clinical guideline from the American College of Physicians. To antibios or not to antibios? That is the question. In the States, we most commonly do. But the tide is turning. The most recent guidelines from the World Society of Emergency Surgery suggests not prescribing antibiotics for patients with uncomplicated diverticulitis. The American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons and the American Gastroenterological Association agree. So what about the American College of Physicians? Their update to the management of diverticulitis had three recommendations, the last one focusing on this. And the survey says... Manage patients with acute uncomplicated diverticulitis without antibiotics. To be honest, this concept is a hard pill to swallow and seems counterintuitive. You're going to need EM, GI, surgery, hospital medicine, private practice, pretty much everyone on board to get this going near you. It's going to take time. Absolutely, it's going to take time. It's also, it's going to be interesting how this is going to play out for patients with recurrent diverticulitis. You know, sometimes we try and avoid a CAT scan if they're like, oh, yeah, this feels just exactly like every time I had diverticulitis before, just give me the antibiotics and I'll go. Maybe you're going to avoid the CAT scan in those, but not if you're going to avoid the antibiotics too. You're going to want to know for sure that it's an uncomplicated situation. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next few years. Right. And you know what? That was actually one of the recommendations. You know, I didn't get into like the other two, but one of them mm -hmm. was basically like, you know, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's probably a duck, you know, relating right. to you don't necessarily have to image every single person if mm -hmm. this is exactly like the symptoms that they've had before. But yeah. yeah. Paper number 20, manual closed reduction of incarcerated hernia. Is it safe in the emergency department? Hernias in the ED come in three flavors. Those that easily pop back in and out, super frustrating. The patient is annoyed because we can't solve their problem, but not a huge concern. Those that are out and scary looking, they're red, they're angry, we're concerned for strangulation, obviously an emergency that we have to deal with. And then there's those that are just out and stuck, but otherwise normal. Is it safe to try and reduce these incarcerated hernias in the ED? This is a single site retrospective chart review of patients presenting with a concern for incarcerated hernias. They found 25% of the patients had a successful reduction by a surgeon in the ED with super rare complications. You can also see the reduction success rate by hernia location, and they found that far more inguinal hernias were reduced successfully when compared to post-op ventral hernias or femoral hernias. There are some limitations, and Mike gets into those in the full segment, but this gives us a rough idea of how likely we, or I guess at least our surgical colleagues, will be at reducing these at the bedside. Yeah, and I have to say, like, if it's incarcerated, I will give it the old med school try. You know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm pretty aggressive with that. If I think it's strangulated, I'm hands off, right? Agreed. I mean, you know, if surgery wants to come down, do something with that, that's up to them, but I'm not, I'm not going there. Mm -hmm. All right, paper 21, improving the quality of clinical care of children with diabetic ketoacidosis in general emergency departments, 
following a collaborative improvement program with an academic medical center. The authors in this before and after study implemented a whole slew of interventions to attempt to improve adherence to a pediatric DKA nine-item checklist. The interventions included PEDS DKA simulations and modules, assessment reports, and best practice education. The checklist they were trying to adhere to included appropriate fluid concentration and rate, as well as targeted insulin rate. It also ensured no insulin, bicarb, or excessive fluid bolus was given. And lastly, that labs, GCS, and hourly glucose were checked. While adherence to the checklist went up by 10% from 78 to 88, there was no benefit in clinical outcomes. It also appears that the rise was mostly related to improvement in hourly glucose checks, which went from a dismal 35% to 96%. Could this have been accomplished with a mandatory nursing checklist that accompanies the insulin drip? Perhaps. It just seems like an exhausting amount of effort for not that much gain here. Paper 22, Factors Associated with Opioid Overdose After an Initial Opioid Prescription. Authors here wanted to identify what features of an opioid prescription or what patient factors might be associated with an opioid overdose. They looked at a large registry of almost a quarter of a million new opioid prescriptions in opioid-naive patients and followed them for three years, looking for the primary outcome of opioid overdose resulting in either an ED visit or death. They found an overall OD rate, either fatal or non-fatal, of 120 per 100,000 patient years. But this was super variable based on a lot of factors. On the multivariate analysis, they found a few patient features and prescription features that increased the risk of OD. Risk was highest among elderly patients, those over age 75, in patients with a history of a substance use disorder, and in patients with multiple medical conditions. In terms of prescription features, risk was increased if the patient received tramadol, if they received a benzo co-prescription, or if they used multiple providers or multiple pharmacies. So my first takeaway, and we have discussed this before, adding to the theme of the day of kind of deja vu, tramadol is not safer than any opioid alternative. And in fact, as we have discussed, it is likely more harmful. I think it's time probably to just stop with the tramadol. The other features for higher risk make perfect sense to me, and I'm glad that we now have them well-documented. Check out the February 2022 MRAP segment on take-home naloxone. Our prescribing patterns have really been changing for the better on this, even since this paper's data collection, so let's keep it up. Sounds good. That is it. We made it to the end. We Next did time we it. see you guys, it'll be summertime. Woo. <laughs> all right. That's all, everyone. Thank you. It's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. It's that time in the program again for time to talk a little nerdy. This is Swami. I am here as always with Dr. Ken Milne. Ken, it is great to be back on. I love doing the May episode with you because it's the one time in the year that I can use the joke that this is the May or may not time to talk a little nerdy episode. <laughs> I made a point of that the other day in a discussion with a resident and um, they didn't quite get it. And so I said, go listen to anything Jerry Hoffman has ever said over the last five decades. Grown uh, dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> but really, really critically important. Not what we're going to talk about today, though, Ken. You know, we often say at the end of these segments that we take requests. We want to hear topics from the listeners. And now we are going to prove it that it is 100% true because we took this topic 
from our good friend, Chris Carpenter. He sent us an article, asked us to dive into it for time to talk a little nerdy. Ken, what topic did Chris request? Yeah, and how could I turn down my BFF, my best friend forever, Captain Cranium himself, the smartest guy I know, and probably a little bit even nerdier than I am. (laughs) He asked us to take a skeptical look at the medical publishing industry. And his request stemmed from an article published in Research Integrity and Peer Review, which I'm guessing all of our listeners read on a regular basis. I know I do. And the study was entitled A Billion Dollar Donation, Estimating the Cost of Researchers' Time Spent on Peer Review, published in November 2021. Ken, since most of our listeners don't get this journal and haven't read this article, can you just give us a quick and dirty bottom line from the article? Sure. Yeah. So here we go. Here are the numbers. 4.7 million articles were published in 2020, and it would require roughly 22 million reviewers. The average time per review is estimated to be somewhere around six hours. So you can do the math. This works out to more than 130 million hours or 15,000 years of work if you were working 365, 24 hours a day like we do in the emergency department. But the ultimate cost was $2.5 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B dollars to do peer review for 2020. That's an incredible number. And when we're talking about cost, we're talking about how much those reviewers, et cetera, would be paid to do that work. But that's really what we're going to get into here because, Ken, both you and I have been peer reviewers for different journals. I'm pretty busy. I definitely don't have 130 million hours on hand, but I'm, I'm busy. And I know you are incredibly busy. We were just talking about how many shifts you've been working. Why is it that we offer these services to do peer review? Well, like most things, I think it's multifactorial. But originally, I, I was kind of flattered. You know, like, you care about what I say about your research projects? I mean, it seemed like a real prestigious ask that somebody wanted for me to review somebody else's work. But as I got farther in my career and busier, it seemed like more of a hassle to actually do the peer review process. I agree. I I think early on in your career, this is something that we all look at and say, this is something that we should do. It's, It's part of being part of the community of emergency medicine, of medicine in general, of science. And so we offer our services. It's also a good way to learn how to really dissect articles and dissect research. However, the amount of time, the value that we invest isn't always reflected in that free peer review process. Oh, yes. You hit the nail on the head there. The free peer review process. And they estimated it to be, you know, $2.5 billion. And I think that's a gross underestimate of the true cost. One reason is they estimated the hourly rate for peer review to be about $69 per hour in the U.S. Now, they had lower amounts for the UK and for China, and this was based on the annual postdoc salaries and the annual professor salaries. And I think, you know, I don't want to guess here, but I think physicians in the US make more than $69 an hour. Can you confirm that, Swami? (laughs) I can confirm that if I work a clinical shift, I am making far more than $70 an hour, $69 an hour. Absolutely. And, And I guess That's really the equation, Ken. I could do this peer review, six hours of peer review, or I could go work clinically and get paid considerably more. 
But either way, I'm not getting paid at all. <laughs> I'm not getting paid the $69 an hour. And I'm like, I'm just I'm pay, getting paid zero. To You're getting that, that nice round number, Swami, that nice big round number. <laughs> yeah. And as, aside from making my taxes easier to compute, Ken, you know, getting paid zero dollars an hour doesn't really feel all that good. But let's actually get into what we do when we do a peer review, because six hours to do a peer review sounds like a lot of time. What's the process involved in doing that? Yeah. And it depends on how, I don't know, conscientious you are about it, because, you know, there are different peer reviewers out there. But if you look at how the process itself works, articles are submitted to a journal for publication. And right off the bat, almost half of them, 45%, are desk rejected. That means they're just rejected without even any review. That means 55% of manuscripts do go through that peer review process. However, not all of them are ultimately published. Some of them go through the peer review process and then are rejected. But regardless, they do have that time cost of going through peer review. And it's rare. I mean, I can't remember ever, I think, submitting an article for peer review that it was accepted without any revisions. And it's more likely that the manuscript gets sent back to me and other researchers once, twice, or even more times for revision. And so it's a long process. It can take months to get this process done. And it's a pretty substantial investment in time and effort, usually. It sounds like a substantial investment, as you said. There was an estimate there of how many hours, but how many hours does it take you? When you take an article and you're asked to review it, how many hours does it take you to actually go through it? Well, you know I have a problem, right? And and you know I can't just look at, oh, what did they say? I've got to pull their references. I've got to go to clinicaltrials.gov and see what they registered the trial at. I've got to read around the issue as well. So it may take, I'm slow. Basically, I'm a slow reviewer. (laughs) So it might take me much longer because, you know, I know they say you get what you pay for, but when I review, I really want to give the best job possible. But if you aggregate people, it's somewhere around six hours, four hours, six hours, eight hours, somewhere in that, you know, a shift. It takes about a shift, let's say. But it would depend on the type of article because some articles, you know, an observational study may not be too hard. A randomized control trial might get a bit tricky. You get into a systematic review. I remember one Cochrane review, and now I wasn't a peer reviewer for it, but the publication was 500 pages, 500 pages. So that's going to take a long time just to read. And Ken, we've said it a couple of times, but I want to be quite clear on this. When you do these reviews, how much are you getting paid exactly? (laughs) Sorry. I need a trigger warning next time, okay? Like, you know, and if any listeners are out there, this is when we should be giving the trigger warning. Okay, sit down, pull the car over, stop the treadmill if you're working out. It's $0 an hour. And Ken, you know, I haven't gotten paid for any of this work either. It wasn't a surprise. It's not like I went into it thinking that I was going to get cut a huge check that never came. I knew I wasn't going to get paid. I might not be the typical reviewer. You might not be the typical reviewer. Are there professional reviewers that the journals employ who actually do make a salary? Yeah, absolutely. Some journals will have professional reviewers on staff for quality control. And this is typically to check to see if the authors are following the guidelines, you know, things like the consort statements that we've discussed before in this program, or the PRISMA guidelines, or the the Moose guidelines for observational systematic reviews. These are the standardized checklists that I like to use actually when I'm doing quality assessments of studies. When we look at that compensation or or the lack of compensation for you and I as the typical peer reviewer, 
a lot of people will say, well, this is part of what you do to gain your promotion and tenure. So is the compensation just coming in a different form from a different source? Yeah, it's, it, it can be sort of like a, a lateral exchange because you're not getting direct compensation from the journal, but you could get indirect compensation with career advancement because your academic institution may have certain parameters that you have to be a peer reviewer or have become an editor or a senior editor at a journal. And, and this is the way you march up that academic ladder in some institutions. So, of course, there are indirect compensations for this work. I will say that I haven't really felt that indirect compensation. I've, I've worked at two large academic institutions, and it was never really required to be a peer reviewer on a journal or, or really even encouraged. And so at the end of it, I kind of look back and say, I invested that time. I didn't get paid. And it also probably didn't go into the decision for me to get promoted or to even be considered for a tenure track. So maybe there wasn't that indirect compensation, although I can't speak for everybody. And I'm sure there are institutions where that might be a piece of your promotion and tenure. And you'll have to know what is kind of embraced in your institution and whether that's something important. So what we have at this point, Ken, is the fact that clearly the vast majority of reviewers are volunteering their time. They're not being paid. There may be some indirect compensation, but there's not true compensation of any kind. But can the journals compensate? Do they have the money to make that happen? Or really, is it important for us to give of our time in order to get these high-level, academic, reviewed journals that we can use for clinical care? Well, I think it's just the publication model that's been developed with medical publication. It's a culture, right? It's just grown up, it's existed, and this is the way it's been. And medical publishing is an extremely profitable business, but it is a business, right? So it's designed to be profitable. And I pulled an article from over a decade ago that showed global revenues for medical publications was in the order of greater than $19 billion. And profit margins were around 36%, which is greater than was posted by Apple, Google, Amazon, these big tech companies in that same year. And it's also more than double those of successful non-medical publications or magazines. Now, most magazines, they pay their writers, they pay the editors, and then they distribute their product. But medical journals are distinct. They get their content from free, from researchers, often funded by others like your university, other public sources, and private industry. So they're not paying for the content, right? For the product. Now they do pay some editors to check for grammar and they've got statisticians on board. And obviously there's the actual mechanics of putting out a physical publication or even an online publication. But the bulk of quality control is done by unpaid peer reviewers. When you look at those numbers, it really tells you that we are in fact being taken advantage of. This is how peer review has run for such a long time that it's the expectation. When I started peer review, I asked some of my senior colleagues if they've done it and what to expect. And they told me this is the system. They all participated in the exact same system. And because it's been going that way for a long time, we don't expect anything different. The individual gets taken advantage of. But aside from that, is there really an issue that we need to change? Well, I think we need to change it because the number of publications is growing at a significant rate. I mean, if you look back at the first six months of COVID, 
there were approximately 24,000 publications in the first six months. That's greater than 135 articles peer-reviewed and published every day. And that's just on COVID. And the pool of potential peer reviewers is not increasing at the same rate. Ken, we have to try to come up with some solutions to the problem. It's one thing to point out a problem, but we always want to try and fix that problem as well. So is this a fixable problem and do we have ideas for how to fix it? Well, I don't want to take ownership of it. And I don't think we, we as you and I have to fix it, but certainly there are potential solutions to this problem. And there have been several suggestions made over the years. The first one, I think, is to publish less research. And yes, I'm a researcher, and I advocate for less research. And this plea was made decades ago by Dr. Doug Altman in the BMJ. And he said, quote, we need less research, better research, and research done for the right reasons. And if you have less publications, it means fewer peer reviewers are needed. And of course, the other side of that coin is that less peer reviewers means that it becomes more realistic to actually pay those peer reviewers properly, get them trained properly, all of the things that we need to go into this process. The number of publication continues to go up. And I think part of that, Ken, is because of this publish or perish model that we see in academic institutions where we're told if we don't have a certain number of publications, a certain number of PubMed IDs per year, We can't really not only get academic advancement, but we aren't going to maintain our standing as faculty. It's one of the key components to both academic advancement and to maintaining your role as a faculty member. Is there something else that could be done? Yes. Besides the sheer number of things that are getting published, so reducing the amount of research, papers also get shopped around and are often rejected by at least one journal before being submitted to another journal for consideration. And authors typically target the highest impact journal, not necessarily the best journal for the publication. And if the reviewers from the first submission who rejected the article could be available to the second journal when it was submitted, they may not need two or three reviewers, but just one or two. So you could decrease the number of reviewers to finally get published because it's already gone through a peer review process that hasn't been shared. It makes a lot of sense to decrease the redundancy that's happening. I understand some journals are already doing this, like PLOS. Is there anything else that we can add on top of that? Well, yes, you could have less senior peer reviewers doing the work. Now, I'm not a huge fan of this proposal because you've got to be sure that the quality is still the same, but you could pair a senior peer reviewer with a junior peer reviewer on each submission. And this could really act as a mentoring program on how to critically appraise the literature. And then you could have a very junior person doing some grunt work, like, you know, just filling out the quality checklist. Like, did they randomize? Was the randomization blinded? Are these the patients we're looking at in the emergency department? You know, go through that checklist, yes, no, or unsure, and then push that up to the senior reviewer. I think that would be really helpful or having someone in-house going through from the journals, going to clinicaltrials.gov and checking and saying, is the primary and secondary outcome that was proposed and registered, is that the same thing that we just got submitted to be considered for our journal to publish? I like that idea because one of the things that I kind of criticized in my process of doing peer review 
is that I didn't really have any mentorship. I, I was kind of on my own learning as I go. And that's not the worst thing in the world, but probably my early peer reviews weren't very good because I didn't really know what I was doing. It took time to learn that process. It would be great to be paired with a senior peer reviewer who can kind of point out as you go through it. It's like, oh, what about this? And I'm like, oh, that's a good point. I probably should have noted that. And that's a good way to learn to really train a able body of peer reviewers that you can then go to over and over again. And with that, I think it would be reasonable to have some kind of a graduated payment system where the senior peer reviewer might be making a little bit more to do both the training as well as the peer review, but the junior peer reviewers are still getting some kind of a compensation to make it worth their time. All right, Ken, before we close up, let's, let's hit maybe one more thing that we can do to try to help this system along to build it better so that we are not taking so much advantage of our peer reviewers. Well, I didn't give a trigger warning last time, so I'll give the trigger warning this time. You might be shocked. How about publishing companies who are making billions of dollars off this free service from researchers doing peer review, lower their profit margins, and pay for peer review? Now, I know that that's like crazy talk, but the saying is, you get what you pay for. And when I've looked at peer reviews, some of them are fantastic, really super. Obviously, the person's invested a lot of time and it's high quality. Other people, you're like, did they read the paper or did they just <laughs> read the title of the paper? You know, and so it's highly variable with regards to that. And I know that a publishing company is a business. And if it's a publicly traded company, they have a primary responsibility to the shareholders. And of course, it is much more complicated than we're just saying in this final uh, part, but we can include some more resources at the end of this so people can dig deeper into the topic if they'd like to. At the end of this, Ken, I think that this article is a critical read for anybody who is doing peer review, has been involved in peer review in the past, or is contemplating doing peer review. I think going in with closed eyes makes no sense. I thought for a long time, well, the journal simply can't afford to pay me, so it's okay for me to donate my time. It's the right thing to do. But as you get into it, you learn that there's quite a bit of money in there. And perhaps each journal is not the same. Some journals might have a bigger war chest. Some may have smaller ones. But, but it's not the journal. We got to be careful about separating the journals from the publishing companies It's the parent companies companies, the publisher. You're right. You know, right. we've got to be a little careful because yes, journals, obviously, you know, they sell for um, their subscribership at times. They, they advertise in certain journals. But what we're really focusing here on, Swami, is the publishers. Well, that's a really that excellent it. point, Ken. I think that, that's a big point because we see the same publisher for hundreds of different journals, right? It's not just the Annals of Emergence Medicine or JAMA, but we see that parent publisher that has so many different journals that they run. And that's really where the money is and, and where, again, that advantage of the peer reviewers is being taken. Yeah, I think that's where our focus should be on. Because the vast majority of journals aren't like these, some of these high impact journals that may have revenues that are impressive. I didn't do a deep dive into that. I was specifically looking at who publishes the journal. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I'm glad that you brought that up. I'm glad that we are separating those two things. But I think really at the end of this, as peer reviewers, we need to go into this with our eyes open and know what is there and start thinking about where our time can be best used and how our time should be compensated for. Whether this leads to a revolution or not, Ken, I can't say, but I think reading this article really is an eye-opener. It really is a lot of important information that we need to know going into this process. Well, it may or may not make you less <laughs> likely to volunteer as a peer reviewer. All right, Ken, I can't think of a better way to close off 
this segment, this time to talk a little nerdy for May. And Chris, I, I hope that we have done the article justice. I hope that we have gotten into it and, and we've hit all of the points that you wanted us to get into. And just to make sure that we actually did hit all of the points that Chris thought were important, we reached out to him for a little bit of comment on his role as an editor on an editorial board and some of the work that he has done and how it applies to everything we just spoke about. Hey, Ken and Swami, huge thanks to EMA's Time to Talk Little Nerdy for discussing Axel's billion-dollar donation manuscript. On behalf of journal editorial boards everywhere, this was long overdue. Editorial boards generally contribute their time, considerable expertise, and ideas to our specialties journals without pay or fanfare. Most editorial boards provide their time because they believe in advancing the science and the humanism of our specialty, as well as paying it forward for those who reviewed their manuscripts in the past. As both of you have noted on EMA in the past, journals must continue to improve the speed and quality of traditional peer review while innovating the final product and post-acceptance dissemination so as not to become obsolete in the digital world. One example of the billion-dollar donation from Academic Emergency Medicine is the Guidelines for Reasonable and Appropriate Care in the Emergency Department, otherwise known as GRACE, which have now addressed recurrent lowest chest pain and recurrent lowest abdominal pain with great adherent clinical practice guidelines. A conservative back-of-the-envelope estimate of the time invested by each writing team that converted to clinical hours worked easily exceeds $1 million per GRACE product. Yet each generated few, if any, strong recommendations, leaving some to question the value of this time invested. As Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Academic Emergency Medicine, I'm biased, but I believe that the time invested in peer-reviewing and creating GRACE guidelines is the foundation upon which future clinicians, educators, and researchers will build more effective patient care protocols. As Mark Twain might have said, it ain't so much what you don't know that gets you into trouble as what you know that ain't so. Without the altruism of our journal's editorial boards and peer reviewers, finding the known knowns and the unknown unknowns would be exceedingly more difficult. Thank you. And again, as a reminder to our listeners, if you have a topic you want us to get into, send it on over. We would be happy to tackle it, to take it on, and we'll try to do our best job. Even if you're not Ken's BFF, we will still take your recommendation. <laughs> All right, Ken, I can't wait to see you next month. Love talking nerdy with you. And so it has been said. May 2022, in the books. In the books. And uh, yeah, I'm really hopeful. That we're heading into, you know, a nice oh, summer. Stop it. You can do it again. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Maybe if you do it twice, it'll this, remove this double, the jinx. Is it a double reverse? You think that that's... I don't know. All a, I know is you're terrible at predicting this. You're like... I said I hope. I'm and not predicting. And you, a lot of people have predicted it. They'd be like, oh, I think it's going to get better. But it's not like immortalized for thousands of people to hear. Every, and every month, you've got to make this like no, weather, very weather style prediction of like something about the COVID. Look, dude. It's like, I got out of my bed this morning. I saw my own shadow. COVID is going away in six weeks. That's that's the thing. I'm Poughkeepsie Mike. <laughs> is it Poughkeepsie or Punxsutawney? I don't know. You're probably right. <laughs> I'm very good at these obscure things that nobody should know. Groundhog Day. <laughs> yeah, Punxsutawney Phil, I think. I'm going to go with Sam. Well, you're going to be wrong. I know that. Hopefully... You aren't wrong about this COVID There's someone thing. from Punxsutawney or Poughkeepsie who's like, I can't believe you, th- yeah. you guys don't We're know famous that. for one thing, one thing, and Mike has to screw it up. Or you screwed it up. Nobody knows for sure. It's true. Nobody probably knows. <laughs> Even the people who live there.
I'm impressed you knew something about it was a groundhog shadow, not just whether he came out of the hole or not. You knew <laughs> something. See a shadow and get it. I saw Groundhog Day. It's a great movie. Okay. We should assign 80s movies just like what Doug the Slug does on First Wave to take it back home. We should do that from now on. We're going to assign some movies for people to watch monthly. Now, I'm not prepared to do it this month, but for next month, we're going to pick out some old classics. The problem is how are we going to agree it? Because, I mean, there's like so many. It's like, what's going to take the first position? I would you know like- we'll, do? we'll take movies, put them in a hat, and right at the end of it, we'll just I would it I would like to uh, 80s albums to listen to, too, because some of those are, you know, very formative in my childhood. Childhood, and I still think about some of the first records I owned. That oh, kind yeah, of thing, of you know. Um, maybe we should assign an album and a movie. All right, well, let's think about this. This is good stuff. If you guys have Hold other, I'm gonna triple down: an album, a movie, and a sitcom episode. Because now, I mean, you gotta you gotta get your you know your growing pains in here, your family matters, some of that stuff too. You gotta get it all in. I like or uh, yeah, I like where you're at. I like where your head's at with this one. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed the May episode. And until we talk to you in June. You know what to do. You just stay classy. As possible, stay as classy as possible.